0: On this episode of Creepscast, we have a great collection of stories, guaranteed to help start off 2020 in a spooky spirit. Let's not waste any time, and get right into the first story. Shall we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind? I'm breaking my family's one rule at midnight. I'm showing everyone the truth. Written by alias for whom... Every year, one of us is chosen to learn the truth about our family. Their name is pulled from a nice glass bowl. Everyone cheers. And then they are brought down to the basement to bring in the new Year, while everyone else parties. Last year, I found out. And I refuse to hold it from anyone for another year. It's not right. We all arrived at Grandpa Luke's estate at 7 today for supper and lined ourselves around the long banquet table. At one end, Grandpa Luke and Grandma Jane sat at the head of the table with their children, my parents and six aunts and uncles. All of them had been brought down to the basement except for my Uncle Joe and his wife, Laura. I watched from the opposite end, as Uncle Joe, dressed in his best suit, picked at his roast, eyeing the fine crystal bowl above the fireplace anxiously. He would likely feel better had new names not been added for every new marriage into the family, and every new child born. There's no age limit for being brought below, as well there's always the few papers marked with a small axe. Uh, I'm sorry, everybody. Grandpa Luke would announce if those were pulled. Looks like this is an off year. Uncle Ali, look. My niece, Leo, was perched on her seat beside me. She had molded her mashed potatoes into the shape of a mermaid with two peas as brilliant green eyes. My jaw dropped and performed for kids' amazement. Oh wow, that is such good work, Lil' Leia. She giggled, fixed her thin blonde hair and responded with a proud, Yeah. She's now one for thank yous, which hey, more power to her. I love her stubborn self-confidence. I've sat in the kids' end every year, even when I got into my mid-twenties. They're such brilliant little critters. And I know that if they were in charge, everyone would know about the basement. And we would be doing something about it. But that's tradition for you. Someone way back in our lineage decided, no, we keep this a secret. And ever since then, it's been one person at a time. One year at a time. But we deserved it now. Everyone deserves to know. A glass shattered. All eyes went to Cassidy, my brother Stevens a new wife. Deep red wine was slowly spreading across the tablecloth, and her face was in her hands, her head bobbing in laughter. I'm so sorry, she choked out between chuckles. Stephen's just such just such a she fell into her lap, it certainly wasn't her first wine. Stephen gave everyone a look to let them know that he had it under control, and he helped her to her feet. He put one hand around her waist and began leading her away. She tittered once more. Oh my, maybe I should go lay down for a bit. Is Auntie Cass okay? Leia asked, filled in with her clean and pressed dress. Oh, she's fine, sweetie. But just as they had passed the oaken doorframe and turned left towards their room, I saw her face break into streaks of tears and a certain sickness take hold of her as she gripped her stomach. Well, my Grandpa Luke exclaimed, brushing off his hands in front of him. Wasn't that just delectable? If a couple of these strapping young men come help me with the dishes... We can bring out the dessert. This was the one day that my grandparents gave their staff the night off. So myself and my Uncle Joe and my dad all started gathering the best finery my family had. Not before I helped Leia off her chair and brought her over to the play area with the other kids. There was a Jenga set about her height over there. And they had all been eyeing it all night. Last thing I saw before getting into the dishes was a little Jacob, only four years older than and having already been brought down to the basement three years back, pulling blocks from the middle, slowly and methodically. We stacked everything in neat piles and transferred much of it into their dishwasher, and then stood about reminiscing over the year behind us. Your little ones are getting so tall, Grandpa had remarked to Uncle Joe. Joe rubbed his bald head with a smile. Yeah, they're also getting to be a handful. We need to find a way to afford a nanny to help things out. Grandpa deftly ignored the hint with a soft nod. Of course, a good nanny can be difficult to come by. I poured myself a glass of beer and then one for my dad. Thanks, Oliver, he muttered. He was also clearly worried about who was going down there tonight. At the very least, he didn't agree with having the kids be an option. He would say, They're too young to handle this. I suppose that's where I get my rebellious spirit. Stephen joined us in the kitchen, a somewhat apologetic smile on his face. Uh, Cassidy's taking a nap. She'll be fine for the countdown, don't worry. Of course, the wonderful young lady you have there. My grandpa said. Yeah, she's perfect. Things are just pretty stressful than cheese. Stephen thought for a moment. Yeah, she's adapting. Cassidy's name had been drawn two years ago. Of course she is. She's strong and I can tell. Grandpa assured him. After that, we all returned to the table for the pies and cakes. Another sweep of dishes and the folks spread out to their own areas for the couple of hours before the countdown. My dad stuck near my grandpa, irritating to me, while my uncle Joe rejoined with the rest of the men to give my grandpa some space. He knew he had made his one push for some help, for maybe his name to appear from that bowl, and now he needed to back off. I sat with my mom and my sister as they chatted about our ski retreat in January, about our beautiful Christmas tree, about my sister's financier fiancé and how much they wished she could have joined us. But it's a family-only affair, of course, and marriage is what truly makes someone family. Freaking traditions. I turned to the kids' area again. Leah was sobbing in the corner. It was probably nothing. Kids cry all the time, but I went over there anyways. What's up, little Leah? I asked. Jacob keeps hogging all the pieces, she sniffled. Jacob did indeed have a massive collection of the blocks. Almost enough to build the full tower. Did you try talking to Jacob's mom? Or one of the other adults? Yeah, but they said it was fine. She pouted indignantly. Of course they did. No, listen, sweetheart. Sometimes all these grown ups think what they say is right. That Jacob deserves the blocks that he has. But that's all bullhooey, you hear me? I paused so she could giggle. You deserve just as much of what you want as Jacob does. Maybe even more. You just gotta take it like he did. Leia nodded. Thanks, Uncle Ollie. She wrapped her little arms around me and then ran off. I figured if there was any time to do what I needed to do, it was right now. I walked across the dining hall, through the wide doorframe and towards my grandpa's study. Inside, I found him chatting with my dad. Still, I clenched my jaw. Hey, Dad, Mom wants to chat with you. "'Something about the ski trip, it sounds important.' "'Oh,' he said. "'He grabbed his beer, cheers Grandpa, and walked by me. "'I don't want you making a fuss," he said to me in passing. "'It's fine,' I replied, entirely noncommittal. "'I casually closed the door behind me. "'Grandpa smiled at me brightly, swirling a glass of whiskey. Mo, oh, how's your year been, Oliver?' He asked. I understand you've been doing very well at your programming, was it? Yeah, doing well, but could be doing better. I sat down at the chair beside him. I was wondering if we could chat really quick. He sighed and set his glass down. Of course. What would you like to talk about? The basement was all that I gave him. Of course, he repeated. It's been quite a year for you, I imagine. A lot of big changes. But usually, when one of the family's name is drawn on New Years, the following year is the most prosperous time of their life. They skyrocket. He knew what I was going to say. I had talked with my parents in tears multiple times in those early months. So, they had to have brought him in. I don't think it's right. Another soft nod. Oh, I understand, but this is the best way of doing it. How do you know? I asked, my voice raising. We've never tried anything else. It has been working for hundreds of years. He spoke only with a chuckle. At some point down the line from my great-great-great-grandparents onwards, if it needed to change, it would have done so by now. Everyone deserves to know, I mean Christ, the world deserves to know. That really got his attention. Plenty of us had talked about telling everyone in the family, but no one had dared to bring up the idea that the world finds out what goes on deep beneath this building. No one dared tell anyone else what we were. Grandpa Luke pointed one stern finger at me, ''You know dang well what you're proposing could get you.'' His eyes sunk deeper, shadows casting over the whites of his eyes. I felt the movement wriggling through my abdomen and up my chest. My face turned into a grimacing snarl before he could even react. He was getting old and weak. My jaw disconnected from my face, allowing the whole of my mouth to spread wide open as well as my throat to match it. Before he could even move, my maw spread almost to the hardwood floor. Oliver, no! he yelled out. But they were coming. Countless, writhing tentacle-like worms, all of colors known to man and otherwise, exploded from me and engulfed his form. Before he could cry out or make another sound, Some of these silvery worms slipped into his mouth and flew down to where his own lay, old and weak, to devour them. I heard their cries in my mind, and not in the air, but they didn't cry for long, and the sounds were overwhelmed by the sounds of my own moaning and elation, the sound of power. As the worms retreated to my body, there was nothing left of the old man, Not a speck of red, nor a scrap of meat. I grabbed his whiskey. Uncle Joe stood at the door. His eyes were wide in shock, but he didn't make a sound. I locked eyes with him for some time in that empty room. And then he swallowed hard, nodded, and walked away. Uncle Ollie! Uncle Ollie! Leia called to me as I re-entered the dining room. I built a huge tower. I picked her up in my arms and looked at the magnificent creation, all slanty and full of gabs. Oh, that's gorgeous. Hey, sweetie, you want to come look at the fire? Yeah. We wandered over to the fire where I set her down to marvel. While she did, I grabbed the crystal bowl, played around the little slips of paper, and then pulled one out. Joe Tremblay Looks like it was your lucky year. Regardless, Uncle Joe. I threw the bowl and the papers out. Hey, Leia, you want to know something? I asked her, crouching down to her level. She nodded enthusiastically. We're doing things extra special this year. You, Uncle Joe, Aunt Cassidy, Mama, we're all going down to the basement together. She clapped in surprise, made an exaggerated gasping face, and I did too, opening my jaw just slightly wider. At midnight, we're going to head on down, down down those slick stone steps, far too many, far too dark, and at the bottom, in that pool of water that goes down God knows how much farther. Something so powerful awaits. What belongs to us. What is us. And it needs a nice, warm home. Everybody, Grandma Jane called out oblivious. It's getting closer to the countdown. Gather up. I stood up and took Leia's tiny hand. The whole family deserves to know. The whole world will know. And they aren't ready. I went monster hunting and it ended horribly. Written by Master P3861. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you would do anything to get it? Well, that's how I felt about everything with my family and my girlfriend, so I did what I could. I smoked, I drank, and I did everything else I could think of in my brain. I wanted to do something scary like skydiving or riding a roller coaster, but all that stuff wasn't intense enough. And then the day came that changed my life forever. My friend Frank invited me to a bar to ask me a very important question. At this point, I hadn't seen Frank in two years, and Frank was always the daredevil of the school, if you can call him that. Frank would always hang out with the bad crowds around school, and they were often into drugs. And he really didn't respect women, so he messed with girls a lot. But there was one thing he liked more than anything else. And that was monsters. Frank loved the paranormal and cryptids and all that stuff. He tried to connect with them and contact them. He loved exploring haunted places and he even got his own TV show called Monster Hunters. But it was stupid and dumb because he thought it was a good idea for a job. When I got to the bar that night, I saw Frank sitting in the corner drinking a beer When I walked over, he smiled at me, and then I sat down across from him and he pushed a cup of foaming beer in front of me, saying that it was on the house. Hey dude, how you doing? How you been? Frank asked me in his deep voice that he got over the years apparently. He honestly didn't look very good. He looked like a piece of crap. His hair was everywhere and his clothes looked old, but he really didn't seem to care. I grabbed the beer that he offered and took a drink, telling him about everything that had happened to me so far, and he gave me a thumbs up. "'Look, the reason that I brought you here is um, I'm asking you for something. Do you want to help me with something?' I asked Will and Alan, but they said they didn't want to help me, so now it's you. "'What is it this time, Frank? What do you need?' I'm not giving you more money, so don't even ask. I hissed, slamming my beer cup on the table as hard as I could. Everyone looked at me in the bar when I made the loud noise, and I smiled nervously at everyone. Frank laughed like what I just told him was a joke, but I didn't think anything about it was funny at all, but I didn't want to tell him that. Oh no, Sean, I don't need any more money What I do need is for you to help me with some ghost hunting. You know my TV show, I could use an extra helper tonight. Frank said, grinning at me. Oh god, Frank. No, just, no, you know how much I hate that show. And that's why you made me come here in the first place. I could be at my own job right now, but no. I have to be here with this crazed maniac. You, who hunts ghosts and monsters for a living. I said, standing up from the table. I started walking out of the bar, but Frank stood up and followed me, asking again for me to help him. His words were also stabbing me in the heart, making me really feel bad for him. I wanted to yell at him and tell him off and just to leave me alone. But for some reason, I turned around and said, yeah, I would help him. Maybe I just felt really bad for him, or I don't know, but... I said yes. Oh, thank you Sean, it really means a lot. This is where I'm going exploring tonight, Frank said and then he pulled out a note and handed it to me, smiling. Um, where's the place you want to take me to? I asked, looking at the note and then at him, but he didn't say anything. He just patted me on the shoulder and then walked out at the bar, leaving me standing there with a note in my hand. After a minute, I headed out and into my car and then I unfolded the note wondering what it had said. It said, come to 13 Chestnut Road at 10. Don't worry about bringing stuff, I'll have it all covered. I glanced at the clock and saw that it was 9 o'clock already. I was a little less than an hour away from the location so I turned in my car and I headed that way. After a while, I got there and I gasped in shock. It was an old-looking building. I got out of my car and saw a big white van and then I realized it was Frank's ghost hunting van. When I walked up to it, I saw Frank leaning on the side of the van smoking a cigarette. And he smiled when he saw me and I groaned. Yeah, I know, dude, I told you that I quit smoking, but... "'I need one today, so leave me alone. "'And don't say how smoking's bad for me and everything. "'I get enough of that crap from my dad,' Frank said. "'He then threw the cigarette down on the ground "'and stomped on it with his foot. "'I asked him where we were, "'but he put his finger on his lips and then he told me "'he wanted to introduce me to someone. "'He then banged on the side of his van.' The door opened and a girl stepped out of the van. She was pretty cute too. She had dark red hair and bright green eyes. She was wearing a full set of black clothing and Frank was noticing that I was wearing a green shirt and blue jeans and I noticed the girl was holding a video camera. Oh, hello. You must be the extra help that Frank said we were getting. I'm Rachel. It's nice to meet you. The girl said, sticking her hand out for me to shake. I told her that my name was Sean Winters and she smiled. I noticed that she had a strong grip and that she smelled like flowers or was that her hair? After a minute, she let go of my hand and looked at Frank, who gave her a sweet smile. Okay, you two, you guys are ready because it's time we get going. Frank mumbled under his breath. And then he pointed at Rachel who stood nearly in front of him. And she held the video camera up and aimed it at him. Welcome everyone to another episode of Ghost Hunters. Tonight, we're here at an old asylum that Dr. Finn Williams lived and worked at. But then he got fired and was never seen again. Some people say that his ghost still roams the halls looking for victims to terrorize. Frank said into the camera, Rachel held up her hand and told Frank that she had to stop filming because the camera was acting up and she was going to try to fix the camera. While this was happening, I grabbed Frank's hand and dragged him over to the side. My face was burning with anger. Dude, for freaking crying out loud, you didn't tell me that we were going here. Everyone knows about the monsters and the horrible things that man made here. And you want to walk around this place looking for them. I don't know. I don't think I'm going to do this. I hissed at him. Hey, chill out, you big baby. It's fine. Frank whispered to me grinning. And then he walked away asking Rachel if the camera was still working. Rachel gave Frank a thumbs up. And then all three of us headed to the front door of this horrible place. Frank grabbed the doorknob and opened the door, making it creak as loudly as humanly possible. Okay, you two, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk around inside for a bit and see if we can get any good coverage. Frank said, looking at us. And then he turned and he headed inside. We followed shortly after him. We walked around, looking at everything that we could. And Rachel was filming most of the time, and I was really just looking around. I saw junk all over the place, and a lot of it was on the ground. Then I saw an old wheelchair sitting in the corner. Suddenly, from behind me, I heard Rachel scream at the top of her lungs, and both me and Frank turned and looked at her. I felt worried, but Frank was smiling. "'What is it, Rachel? A ghost or a monster?' Frank asked, sounding very excited. No, no, but but look. Rachel said, pointing down at the ground with her free finger. There, laying in the ground, was a dead rat, but its head was missing, and there was dried blood on the ground where its head should have been. Well, that sucks, but it looks fresh. I said, looking at the poor rat. Frank didn't say anything. He just turned around and started walking away from us, and we both followed behind him. Um, Frank, aren't you the least bit concerned about that? I asked from behind him. What am I supposed to be concerned about, Sean? He asked without looking at me. You know, that we saw a dead rat in the ground means there's something in here that we're not supposed to see, I said. Frank didn't answer my question or anything, but then we came to a hallway two different ways and the three of us stopped and looked at each other. Okay, you guys, I'll go left and you and Rachel go the other way, and we'll make sure to meet back up out in a few hours by the van, Frank said. This was a dumb idea, you're never supposed to split up in situations like this, and really, the whole planning night was dumb. But I didn't want to say that to Frank in fear that he would get mad at me. But Frank, how are you going to film anything if you don't have a cameraman like me? Rachel asked him. Frank then pulled out a phone and pointed at it without saying. He gave us a wink and then walked down the right side of the hallway. Rachel and I looked at each other with confused expressions. And we started down the other side of the hallway. As we were walking, I explained to Rachel about how Frank started the show and to Dr. Finn really was. Other workers said that he experimented on people turning them into monsters and then one day, he turned himself into a monster and that he's roaming these halls looking for food ever since. Rachel nodded like she understood and then suddenly we both heard a loud bang stopping us in our tracks. We both looked around until Rachel bumped into me, and she asked what was wrong. I pointed to where I had heard the loud banging coming from, which ended up being an open doorway. And suddenly, a chair flew through the air, and hit the wall, and it was right in front of the doorway, and it broke into a bunch of different pieces. We both screamed and then ran down the hallway, Rachel behind me, but I felt my legs go faster as they carried me down the hallway. And then I stopped behind a wall. Rachel stood next to me, and I noticed that the camera was now turned off. What happened to it? I asked her, looking at it confused. I'm sorry, Sean, it turned off and I didn't do it on purpose. This camera is just so old, Rachel said, sounding annoyed about it. I told her it was okay and to calm down when we suddenly heard a blood-curdling scream that made both of us jump in the air. "'My gosh, that was Frank,' Rachel said, sounding worried now. We both ran down the hallway and then when we got around the corner, we both saw Frank leaning against the wall in the corner with his head facing the ground. "'Frank, what the heck did you scream for? You all right?' I asked, anger bubbling up in my voice." But Frank didn't answer. He didn't even move. I growled under my breath and then walked over to him, ready to slap him in the face. And in one swift motion, I turned him to face me. And when I saw his face, I screamed and threw his body to the ground. Rachel came up from behind me, and then she saw Frank lying in the ground and she screamed. Both of Frank's eyes were gone. I noticed that right away, all that was left were big black empty holes where his eyes should have been. There was red all over his shirt and his other clothing, and he had blood where his eyes had been ripped out. I wanted to cry or scream but nothing came out, I just stood there confused about this. Suddenly we heard heavy breathing, we turned around and my mouth fell open in shock. Standing behind us was a monster. It looked almost human, but it was a foot taller than both of us, and it had completely black eyes. Two more. The monster hissed in a deep voice, looking at us with a sick grin on its face. I shouted at Rachel to run, and we somehow got by the monster and then Rachel and I ran back down the hallway but suddenly she stopped and turned back around, and I stopped to look at her. Rachel, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? I asked her worried. That video camera that my daddy let me borrow it, and if I don't bring it home, he's going to kill me, Rachel said, sounding worried. I told Rachel to get out of here, and she did, telling me thank you, but I ran back and saw the camera lying on the ground. I picked it up and then I saw the monster walking in the hallway straight towards me. I gasped and then booked it down the hallway running as quickly as I could and I felt the video camera bouncing up and down in my hand. I hoped it wouldn't pop out of my hand again. I could hear the monster's big, thundering footsteps behind me. It was closing in on me. I could feel it. I was hoping that it wouldn't rip my legs off. I quickly ducked into a room that was right next to me, and I hid near the doorway behind a box where it couldn't see me, and then I heard it walk into the room that I was hiding in. I saw it looking around, its black eyes scanning the room for me, and then for the first time, I saw that it had rows upon rows of razor sharp teeth. I covered my mouth with my free hand. And then I remembered it. I was holding the camera. I wanted to try to film the monster and show it to Rachel, but I didn't want the camera to make any noises so I kept it off. And then I saw the creature turn around, and it growled before heading out of the room, upset that it couldn't find me. I could hear it faintly walking back down the hallway. I took my hand off my mouth and sighed softly, Grateful that it didn't see me. I stood up and got out from my hiding spot and ran down the hallway, ready to find Rachel and to get the heck out of this place. I then slid to a stop and fell open in pure shock. There was the awful monster, but I noticed it wasn't alone. It had found someone Rachel. It was holding Rachel by the neck in its big hand. Rachel was struggling to get free, but it was to no avail. For some reason, the monster didn't seem to notice me, and I quietly got the camera to turn on and started filming the monster and Rachel. The monster lowered its mouth to her and then licked her on the cheek three times, before it suddenly snapped her neck on one go, like she was a chestnut or a strip of paper. Then it finally saw me, and it stared at me with its black eyes and razor-sharp teeth, grinning at me. It dropped Rachel's body on the ground, laughing. One more to go. It hissed at me in its dark voice before laughing again. I then screamed at the top of my lungs and turned around, running down the hallway, and then I tried to hide in the same room as I did before. Behind that box, I was shaking, I looked down noticing that the video camera was still recording. I held it up, so it was in front of my face. I saw that the record light was on. I started breathing heavily, and I sighed softly. To anybody watching this, I am Sean Winters. If anyone sees this or finds this video camera, it means me and my friends are dead. I'm sorry for everything bad I've ever done. If I've ever hurt you, I apologize and I'm sorry for it. I shouldn't have ever done it. I said with tears, running down my face. And then the door busted in. And the monster walked into the room. I thought that it couldn't see me like last time. But then it did notice me and growled and then it smiled. No more. more. It hissed, laughing at me. I screamed as it ran over to me, It then grabbed me, pulling me up by the arm and lifted me up close to its face, licking me on the cheek three times like it did Rachel. And then in one quick motion, it bit into my arm, causing me to scream out in pain. As I started blacking out from the pain... I was really just hoping someone would find the camera that I had dropped on the ground and learn to never come to this horrible place like I did and to never listen to your buddy Frank. Stay Away from the Abandoned Schools in Texas Written by Crimson Bayonet I don't have much time, so I'll try to crunch as much info as I can. This lock can only hold this thing back for so long. My name is Icarus, rather suiting name knowing what I got myself into. Let's start off with where it's at. The school is located in Texas, not saying which town, just please avoid any and all abandoned schools in Texas, for I don't know if this thing is in each school. Please understand, I don't want anyone to go out like I'm about to. So, this all started as a joke at first. In old school, my friends wanted to check out and do like a ghost hunting video in. We never thought we'd actually go since most of us were still scared of a loud sound. It wasn't until Tyler, the oldest in the group, said that he recently had bought a few laptops, a bunch of cameras, and a few uh, spirit boxes. It's really just a fancy recorder. Anyhow, he seemed like he really wanted to do it. And so we got together as a group. It was Tyler, John, Rick, Alicia, and I. We all sat down and read all the ghost stories online. It really only involved being cold or the occasional scratch or two. Plus Tyler said, If we get some of these things on camera, we'll go viral and be big in no time. I was the only techie guy there, so I was to handle the tech and set up the YouTube channel where we would post all of this content. Tyler was the strongest one, so he pretty much carried all the stuff that I just set up. John, Rick, and Leisha all were to bring food, water, and first aid kits just in case. I know John was in JROTC, so he had legitimate first aid training. Let me describe the layout of the school. It was three stories high, each floor had the same design except for the first, since it had a basement and a small boiler room. The other two floors above had, your usual, about 20 rooms each and two sets of bathrooms on each floor. We had enough cameras to log each hallway and bathroom, but as the rumor has it, the basement and the boiler room is where all the action really kicks off. One more important note why this school is haunted is because about 40 years back, there was a massive school attack there. Nineteen children had lost their lives, this included the perpetrator. Now, this was before big media could handle the issue when the local government paid the families outrageous sums of money to keep Texas's top school from getting blacklisted. They said it wasn’t much longer when kids ended up going missing in the area. Some kids would go to the water fountain and just disappear when no one was looking. This too was covered by the school board as they went missing after school hours. The school board held a vote the next year to close the school down. Maybe they couldn't bear the thought or guilt of more children being lost. Shortly after the school became a local legend and how these souls of the children are trapped in it, All local legends are over-exaggerated where one person trips on a rock and suddenly there's a ghost who pushes people down. However, this one seemed legit. It is a hidden gem in the ghost hunting community, as it is very secluded and hidden to the public, so really only locals know about it. There are reports of a scratching, pushing, possession, and even what people call a hellhound as its large black dog with bright red eyes. We arrived at the school, ready to go. We have enough food and water to last us a few days, just in case someone really wanted food. And we also brought all the tech and tripods for the camera. Rick's dad had a generator that was in his shed. It was old and dusty, but it ran just fine, which was perfect to keep all the equipment juiced up. I brought my mobile hotspot so we could go live on YouTube or just post in the account once it was all done. Plus, we have to keep in touch with our parents. I decided to set up base camp in the first floor as a bathroom. It looked still put together besides some broken glass that was easy to sweep away. Once we got set up, Tyler, Rick and I went to each floor to set up the cameras while there was still some light out. We ran the wires and turned them on, record once we got back to the hub, and then we waited, which took a few hours since we got there at 4pm and sundown wasn't until 6pm. Time passed by slowly with nothing showing up on the cameras yet, so we all started telling ghost stories to pass the time. Most of them were really silly and made zero sense like, why would anyone lock themselves in a room that they can't get out of? Isn't it ironic? While well, it wasn't until 7.35 p.m. when we had our first sign. Uh, guys, guys, we have movement on the second floor. Alicia said excitedly. We all rushed by the second floor laptop where we saw just a shadow going in and out of the doors of the bathroom. It was moving quickly as if it was running. I gotta go live on YouTube, we're gonna be famous, I said. I quickly tabbed over and refreshed the page to only get our live access denied. It's okay though, since our channel was new, we can just upload it later, Tyler said. Looking back, he was so optimistic all the time. I set all the cameras to record and to signal us on any movement that was detected. As soon as I did, all the cameras dinged at the same time letting me know something was moving on all of them. So we all chose a camera to look at The second and third floor were firing off with tons of activity. Shadow people, orbs, random debris being tossed and doors closing and opening. It was very off-putting how it all started popping off. I got an eerie feeling. Like, have you ever had the sense of approaching or overwhelming dread? I started to sweat and panic. Everyone was so happy. We're going to be famous, Rick yelled out. Alicia and John were jumping up and joy yelling stuff like, heck yeah, make some noise, it's gold. I looked at Tyler. He was white as a ghost. He must feel it too. I decided to pull him to the side and he saw my face and how worried I was. Now, this was out of character for Tyler to be scared. I've known him all my life and he's always been the protector type. I was the nerd and he was the big tough but lovable jock. Tyler was a senior and I was a junior. He always had my back and he was always by my side. So, when I know that something is wrong with him, I know. Tyler, Tyler, yo big guy, snap out of it, we need to talk. I shook him and doing so, he looked down and blinked a few times and with a straight face, he said, we need to leave now. He rushed to the laptops and grabbed them and the other part of the group was shot. "'What the heck, man? We're going to be famous,' said John. "'Tyler stared them down with anger. "'You idiots. I'm trying to save us. We need to leave, now. "'Forget the cameras. We can come back later in the daytime.' "'Everybody gulped and saw that he was serious.' "'Tyler and I started jogging out, and I had one laptop and he had the other. "'We were about to make it when we heard Alicia scream.' I opened my backpack and threw my laptop in it, and ran back in there without a second thought. I heard Tyler yelling at me, ''Stop, they're already gone, you idiot!'' Uh, I don't know what came over me, but it felt as if my body was moving on its own. As if my will to save my friends outweighed my fear of death, I got to the bathroom. In front was John, at least, it was just his face. It was peeled off like an orange and tossed aside. I could taste the copper in the air, and I could hear Rick crying in the bathroom. No, please, we're sorry. Please, I don't want to go out like this. I can hear in the background the sound of Leisha gurgling. I don't know why I didn't just run. I had to see for myself. It felt like a dream, but it was really a nightmare. I slowly and as quiet as I could went into the bathroom, and I saw John's body flayed like a fish. I barely could hold back my vomit, and I could feel my vision blacking out, and then I felt a hand on my shoulder. I spun around, and before I could scream, Tyler covered my mouth. We used sign language to communicate what was going on. I never knew just learning this on a whim would ever come in handy. We need to get out and grab Rick while the thing is busy with Leisha. Tyler signed me. I know, but how will we do it? In the background, we heard a loud crunch and wreck could be heard throwing up. It sounded like a watermelon popping. It took her head off. I could hear the squelching of it coming out of her neck. Icarus, we need to stay focused. I-, I can distract the thing. I saw it running on the first floor cams and it isn't very fast. I shook my head. What did it look like? It doesn't matter now, but it's not a wolf. Go hide in the girl's bathroom. I will lure it out and I'll meet you outside. I shook my head. Be safe, bro. I signed back. We got into position. and We could hear the thing still going at it to unleash his body. I see Tyler as he gave me a thumbs up and a smile. This was the fakest smile that I had seen him do. And then he waved to me and hid. Hey, you ugly thing. I know you're in there. Why don't you come out for me? The sounds of bone and crunching stopped. It started laughing. You sound delicious. That sound shook me to my core. I could hear it walking out of the bathroom. It must have stepped on John as popping and cracking could be heard, followed by the plopping of its feet. You better start running. and Catch me if you can, loser. Tyler started booking it as quickly as he could. I only caught a small glimpse of it, but it was a pale man. He was without clothing, but with no real body features either. He had very long arms that scraped against the floor, and he was covered in a red hue despite being nearly white. I could smell them as he ran by. He was rancid, and the smell lingered in the air. As he chased my friend, I could hear him laughing. ''Oh, this is fun. Run, rabbit, run.'' Once I couldn't hear him anymore, I ran to the other bathroom and saw Rick crying in a stall. I grabbed his hands, but he was covered in blood. Rick, are you okay? We're gonna get out of here, buddy. It'll be okay. Icarus. He removed his hands from his face and his eyes and nose were gone. Icarus, I've seen the face of God. He came here to punish us for looking into the veil. I'm doomed. You must leave. I snapped out of my trance and grabbed him by his arm and quietly said, No, we are leaving, not just me. I won't lose another friend. I hoisted Rick up and we slowly started to walk to the exit. Where were you going, little rabbits? I slowly turned to see. The thing had caught up with Tyler and was dragging him by his hands. He looked cut up but not eaten, however, and he was unresponsive. I don't know what came over me, but I yelled out at the bees. Screw you. Haven't you taken enough? Those kids 40 years ago, all those kids after who went missing, is it not enough for you? Rick pulled away and fell into the fetal position. No, it's never enough. I will always be hungry. Always. The thing let out a bellow of laughter. It looked straight at me, and then to Rick. Mm, you brought me a snack. I love when they're afraid. It makes them so much more satisfying. It was then he let go of Tyler and reached towards Rick. I saw Tyler launch up and drive a large metal pipe into its neck. Tyler grabbed my hand and ran, and we ran into the basement. I could hear the thing crying in the background. You, I'll get you. We go into the basement and lock the door. Tyler, at this point, was losing a ton of blood. He had been beat up pretty bad. I go to see him carefully holding his stomach together. I start to cry out and I yell, Tyler, no, not you. This can't be happening. He looked at me in with his other hand. He placed it on my shoulder and then coughed and said weakly, Iggy, listen carefully, there's nowhere to go, I want to say this. He starts to pass out, I shook him carefully, what, what do you want, I said. He just looked me in the eye and says, Iggy, you're my best friend, I never told you but I love you dude. I really do. I'm madly in love with you." I couldn't help but cry as I grabbed his face with one hand and he smiled. I'm in love with you too. And we shared a smile and I leaned in and had my first kiss. It was shortly after that he passed away in my arms. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck in this basement with this laptop and my Wi-Fi hotspot. I hope this gets through to someone. I'm happy that I got to tell Tyler my final feelings, but I can hear this thing breaking into the door. It won't hold any longer and I have no chance. Tyler, I hope that we meet somewhere again in the ether. Whoever gets this, please heed my warning. Stay out of any old abandoned schools. I love you, Tyler. I'll see you soon. I investigate the paranormal for the U.S. government. I found something very disturbing. Written by Cryptid Echo. Let me start this off by saying one thing. I absolutely despise blood trees. Look, there are a hundred thousand ways to go out in this world, and over half of those are from cryptids. Half of that is pretty quick or relatively painless, and smaller still are the ones that make it hurt. Within this percentage are two ways of death that every one of you really needs to be aware of. One, a mental break. This one isn't exclusive to eldritch beings, but they love the crap. The idea of yanking your mind and soul out of your body and driving you mad while inflicting pain is probably their favorite dish. You sit there for what feels like an eternity, getting your soul flayed while they show you images and scenes that no human were built to see. And two, a physical break. These are what I like to call digesters. An entity, human or not, who secures your body to something and just puts you through it. Taking your skin off, bamboo under the fingernails, taking out your eyelids, you know the works. These things typically have the ability to heal the damage they cause so they can inflict more pain without ending you. Blood trees. Well, they can do both. I don't know what person conjured these things up, but... I hope the creation did some turnabout on them. Blood trees are hard to pin down. Not that there aren't a lot of them. They are everywhere, relatively speaking. Every forest in the US and Canada has them. The young ones are more active, constantly needing food. And every once in a while you get some kind of cult that pops up around them. With guys wearing robes, chanting, in a made-up language while they yeet some poor schmuck into the bowels of the tree. They typically feast on a living body for a few weeks, and then longer as they get older and learn how to make the meal last longer. The older ones are the ones that you really have to worry about. One live body can sustain them for a few decades or so, which means you are typically being digested for the rest of your natural life. If they get more bodies, they store them for later. The ugly tree from the Johnny Depp version of Sleepy Hollow, a blood tree. Some can serve as gateways to a pain dimension or something, but those are actually really rare. So, blood trees possess the ability to not only digest you over time and keep you alive while doing so, but many of them can mess with your mind while doing it. So, you can see why I hate them. The following investigation showcases three things. One, I freaking hate blood trees. Two, I hate other agencies. Talking about you, FBI, suck it. And three, I try not to go on any investigation alone. Being alone means you're more vulnerable, and there's no help. So, on to the investigation. Agent Echo, arrival and scene at 645. December Redacted. Colorado. You'll realize pretty quick that I hit a lot of things. Dense forests, cults, springform pans, of the FBI. Three of these things came into play today. I found myself at the entrance to a state park, whose name I won't share for obvious reasons. For this one, I didn't have to blend in with the locals, so no crappy apartment or beat to vehicle to deal with. Nope. I made my way to Fort Carson and yanked one of their range control trucks, something with some ground clearance and self-recovery options. I pulled the big vehicle into the gravel parking lot, which was freshly layered with fresh snow. I can't tell you enough how freaking beautiful this state is. Fly trees, a quiet wilderness, elk running everywhere and in many cases, not a lot of people. Anyways... The small visitor center sat nestled in the foreground of a mountain range, an idyllic location for a lovely state park. It was a log cabin style, a single story with large windows, dark stain and a green tin roof. A set of glass double doors served as the entrance with, a small set of stairs leading up to it and a handicap ramp to the side. There were a few park ranger trucks sitting off to the side, And the rest of the lot was empty save for a couple of mid-sized SUVs and a Subaru or two. After parking and shutting off the truck, I hopped out and checked for my gear. I was wearing a set of snow pants over my jeans and a matching parka with fur lining. Mittens covered my thin under gloves and I wore a black beanie. It was balls cold out and I really don't like being cold but I dressed down enough so I wouldn't get overheated while walking. My backpack held enough food and supplies for a few days of travel, with a small axe hanging off the side. I slung a 12-gauge over my shoulder and slid a 454 revolver with a 6-inch barrel into the holster at my hip. Why such a big revolver, you might ask? Well, a few reasons. First off, this is bear country, I don't give a crap about hibernation season, you don't go into bear country at any time without packing some iron. And second off, revolvers don't jam like a semi-auto will. And third, a 454 will put down a bear without much drama. Go into a fight with a bear using a 9mm, I dare you, and bear attacks happen pretty quick. So you aren't going to be playing John Wick with a 500 pound bear that can move quicker than you. Secure that I had all of my crap, I walked up these snowy steps and into the visitor center. It was quiet, not unsettlingly quiet, but just so that no one was really having loud conversations. A tall, brawny man with sandy-colored hair made his way up to me, a park ranger by the uniform. He opened his mouth to speak when I shoved a piece of paper in his face. He took a few moments to read it, and then folded it and handed it back to me. Well, that takes care of the first round of questions. I'm Ranger Sandover, but you can call me Mike. Echo, nice to meet you. Echo? The beginning of amusement lit up on his face. Is that a secret code name? I wasn't about to explain the intricacies of agency policy or the need for official cover names to a park ranger. Yes, Mike, it's a code name. Now screw off. Instead, I looked up at him. He was probably a hair taller than Shouts was, but more muscular. "'Yep. Can we get to business, Mike?' He chuckled. "'Sure thing.' He turned and waved me along as he walked through the facility. "'You with the FBI or something?' I bristled. "'You may not know this, but I hate the FBI.' "'No, they do their own thing, and I don't mess with them. I barely hit my disgust.' The walk through the facility was short. It took only a few seconds to reach the wooden door labeled Ranger Office, and for Mike to throw it open and reveal the contents inside. It wasn't anything special. A medium-sized wooden desk, just a basic industry catalog issue, sat in the middle. A computer screen from 20 years ago sat on the side, along with the nameplate of the supervisor to the area. James T. Celery Ranger Celery sat his portly butt in a swivel chair behind his desk. He was huge. Not huge like a UFC heavyweight. Huge as he probably could wolf down an elk by himself huge. His fat face had sweat on it just from sitting, and his hair had cleared out of the top of his head, leaving a horseshoe of thin brown hair that traveled the circumference of his dome. To his side stood another ranger. That made up the three on duty right now. Christ, she was adorable. Black hair, bright blue eyes. A hair taller than me and probably in better shape than Mike. That was about all that she had going for her. Name tag said, Bristol. Who is this, A new guy? Why are you bringing an armed civilian in here? Not a civilian. You remember the other day. We got a call about an agent coming to take a look around. Well, this is Agent Echo. Bristol looked at me like she didn't want any part of me. Probably the same way I look at FBI agents. And why do we need an agent? This is a state park we don't need. This lady was already getting on my nerves, so I cut her off. Are you the one in charge? If not, then shut the heck up. This crap is above your pay grade. I could hear shout now. Do you always start fights wherever you go? Sometimes, but I can't help it though. This long, doing the work I do, I don't have the time or patience for uppity pians. Bristol turned fully towards me and started forward. Immediately, I pulled the revolver free and thumbed the hammer down, pointing it at her body. Don't even try it. I could put a new butthole in every inch of your body and still get away with it. The room was tense. Mike's face was white. Obviously the guy was an easygoing type. One who hadn't seen the more uncouth side of human nature. Celery, to his credit, remained calm. Folding his hands together. Alright, now calm down everyone. Bristol, will take a walk outside. Agent, please lower your weapon. I understand your role here, but let's have a bit of tact. I nodded slowly and stepped to the side when Bristol passed, still glaring daggers at me, and closed the door. I ran the hammer forward and slid the revolver back into the holster. Please sit down. I didn't. The search and rescue team is arriving soon. You can head out with them when the snow lives. He wiped the sweat from his brow with a handkerchief. I shook my head. I'm not search and rescue, there's something else that I'm after and honestly, this is a courtesy that we told you I'm coming. Sometimes they didn't understand that. For a few reasons, my objective isn't exactly the safety of human beings. Search and rescue handles that. My objective is the destruction of the cryptid emergence that I was assigned to. That and feelings can get you killed and it sucks. That's the way that it is. I just need someone who knows the area. Well, Mike is new. Crap. Search and rescue won't be here until a few hours most likely. Double crap. Meaning the only experienced one I can stand with you is Bristol. Triple crap. I sighed. Search and rescue may not be willing to hightail it right now. Not sure why search and rescue would be delaying at the moment. But I didn't have the luxury of waiting. "'Fine,' I said, after exhaling a calming breath. "'As a group, we walked out of the office. Sothery pulled Bristol to the side while Mike and I hung back. "'And be careful. "'I shouldn't be saying this, but Bristol is a temper,' he said in a whisper. "'Then don't. "'Thanks for the concern, but I'll be fine,' I replied evenly. Sothery and Bristol talked for a few minutes,' A few minutes that went by way too slow. Once they were done, Bristol disappeared in the back for a few moments, and then returned dressed for the weather, a lever-action rifle slung over her shoulder. I nodded, when she returned, and we walked out of the station and around to the back towards the looming line of flock trees that marked the true boundary to the park, We followed these snow-filled footsteps into the trees and started along a path that would have been easier to see, were it not for the eight inches of snow covering the ground. Echo, did you make that up? Must be some kind of organization for you to just use codenames. Are you the CIA? At least you didn't say FBI. No, CIA handles issues outside of the continental US mostly espionage and things like that. I replied evenly. Our earlier tension suppressed under a layer of professionalism. We walked for a while. The miles passed and the time went with it. It was midday by the time either of us attempted conversation again. Huh, so what are we looking for? You said that you weren't search and rescue, so what's the deal? She spoke after a few minutes. We were walking side by side in the pathway, and I pulled up a GPS with a preloaded set of coordinates on it. Honestly, I won't be sure until I see it. Two thumbs. And hopefully, it's nothing. Three more thumbs. I paused while Bristol walked forward, alarm bells going off in my head. Something was coming. I sped up my walk and I closed in on the ranger, mouth opening to speak. You act like it's just going to jump out at you. Jesus, she had to say that. From the thick underbrush, a bear barreled out. Large, fast, and angry. It shouldered me to the side, having locked in Bristol as its target. My shotgun fell to the side and I went backwards onto my back. Bristol screamed out as the bear slammed her to the ground. Massive paws raising and slamming downward to try and rip her limb from limb. If she hadn't gotten her rifle long ways between herself and the bear, she really would have been done for. As I came to my feet, the bear caught her left shoulder and smiled, grabbing and dragging her to the side, shaking her violently. I ran up with the 454 in hand. I got up close so I wouldn't risk hitting her and fired. Once or twice, the bear went down in a heap, its head half gone. I took Bristol's rifle and looped the sling around the bear's neck and pulled back hard, giving the ranger a bit of room to shimmy out from under it. Blood was pulled underneath her shoulder, and she was breathing hard, eyes wet at the realization of what had just happened set in. I dropped to her side and pulled her coat open expecting to find a tattered mass of flesh where her torso had been. Instead, I found claws. Not marks, but actual claws. The claws from the bear's paws had broken off the second they split the skin. Uh, alright, you look surprisingly good. Bewildered was a good word for it. Her nervous chuckle split the air. A few drops of blood pooled from under her uniform shirt but her shoulder was a little worse off. The teeth had remained intact for a bit longer and did cut a few nice gouges into the flesh. I pulled a med kit out of her bag and set to work. How, how am I not, what the heck? She spoke between breaths. She looked up at my face and shot me a peculiar stare. You know what happened? Freaking tell me. That thing should have ripped my guts out. What's going on? I finished the bandage on her shoulder inside. Reaching out, I pulled the claws from her chest and lifted one up, squeezing it between my fingers. It snapped quickly and fell to pieces afterwards. It was already dead. Come again? She spoke incredulously. Already dead. I think I know why, but I really wish I didn't. I leaned down and removed Bristol's knife from the sheath on her belt. Before she could protest, I lifted up the arm of the bear to expose its underbelly better, and I pushed the knife in. Pulling to the side, the skin split open with a sick pop, and its insides fell out all over the snow. Huge clots of red remained attached to the different organs, and I reached a gloved hand down into its body, searching around for a moment. "'Okay, that's disgusting. What in God's name are you doing?' I didn't speak for a moment, and then I pulled my hand free, holding up a horrid-looking object. It looked like a seed with many small roots coming out of it. It was like a tumor growing, the roots wriggling randomly, trying to find purchase into something. Oh my god, Bristol went pale. Most people did when they first saw one of these things. Human minds can't fully process some things very well. A blood tree. God dang it. I stuck the tip of the knife into the seed and pulled it free. A copious amount of fresh red spewed from the opening. More than the palm-sized thing could have been able to hold. I tossed it back into the bear. It's been using the bear to travel. Animals have an instinct that is hard to override. Especially with a predatory animal. A few more days and the seed could have controlled it. Okay, I'm going to need you to explain this in a bit more detail. Why isn't the bear hibernating? Why didn't it kill me? How was it dead and what the heck was the thing you just pulled out of it? I sighed softly. Look at the bear's head where I shot it. Look where I cut it. See any blood that didn't come from the seed... No, because it's already coagulated. The bear was mostly done for. It attacked you because the seed, trying to control it, made it lose its mind. The seed that I pulled out is from a blood tree. They survive off of fresh bodies. There is a whole book I could tell you, but just realize that they are bad news, and it seems you have one in your little park, probably with a cult around it too. A cult... Like guys in black robes chanting stuff. Yep, exactly. Blood trees don't usually infect animals. Their instincts make it hard to separate an animal from its natural area to spread. Which means it was probably put there by someone. Ergo, you have a blood tree cult. Here, help me with this. Finding it next to a bottle of tequila in a rag, I pulled a big bottle of lighter fluid from my bag and tossed Bristol along towards it. She fumbled with it, but caught it. I began dousing the bear with lighter fluid. I'm not sure how many seeds are in this thing, so best bet is to burn it. Once finished, I swapped the fluid for the torch and set the bear alight. Bristow's squeezing a bit more fluid on there for good measure. So what now? She asked softly, nibbling her lap. Find the tree, burn it, and take out the cultus. She didn't respond. We took a few minutes to rest and eat, regain some energy. I checked her bandages, but the wounds were surprisingly superficial. Bristow floated the idea of making camp, but I shook my head. Not the place we want to camp. If we're going to find it and live, then we have to find it soon. It knows that its seeds just died. After securing all of our gear and finding a rifle on my shotgun... We continued our walk in the direction the bear had come from, with me reloading the 454 on the way. A half hour went by before we spoke again. Um, Echo. Far contrasting her earlier bravado at her first meeting, her voice was meek and girlish as scared. Yeah. What's going to happen to me? Dang, she had good instincts too. Well, it depends. If the seeds had enough control to sprout their own, then you'll probably be infected. Your shoulder will ache more, get red hot, and you'll see small roots in the wound. They'll slowly move through your body until they invade your brain and take you out while retaining control of your body. If not, then a few weeks of recovery and you'll be fine. I don't sugarcoat things. It never pays to, really. Bad things happen, and they happen whether we like it or not. She let out a small sob. It was still too early to tell if she had been infected, though. Well, what happens then? You burn me too. Well, after I put a bullet in your head, yeah. Mostly so you won't feel it. But remember, it's too early to tell. You might be alright. That wasn't a lie, at least. We walked farther and deeper into the woods. The sun had set, leaving us in the darkness. But the moon provided enough light that it reflected off the snow and made walking easier. I didn't want to use the light. We already made enough noise walking to risk fully giving ourselves away visually. We stalked silently up the ridge where light played random shadow games over the top and on the other side. I slid down to my knees in the snow and Bristol followed suit where we crawled the rest of the way up. Looking out, there is a small clearing, a fire looming in front of a large and narrow tree that bled profusely from many different openings. Four figures in hooded cloaks stood there, evenly spaced but far from the tree to stay out of range of its flailing limbs and roots. The scene was grotesque, and I heard Bristol dry-heave into a jacket to muffle the sound. I had been around a few of them, and I still have to fight nausea from overwhelming me. These things were bad news on every level, a sickening entity that could have an effect on someone just based on proximity. I watched for a few minutes just to get the nausea under control, and hopefully Bristol could do the same. I looked over to her, laying just a few feet from me. Hey, you alright? Yeah, I think... Well, make sure you are, and this is going to happen fast. I peeked over the rise that we lay upon, noticing that we were about two meters above the clearing. Not much of an elevated position, but enough to give us an edge. I searched in my bag for the bottle of tequila. Shame to use it on a blood tree, but we would have to get another bottle later. I unscrewed the cap and stuffed a rag into it, and then put the cap back on hopped down the hill, kill the cultists, burn the tree. Wait, we can't just kill them. The law doesn't work like that, Echo. <laughs> Are you serious? Do you know what these people would do to you if they... My words were stopped short by the sound of heavy footsteps. I looked back in time to see an athletic man barreling towards us, blood in his eyes with a touch of fanaticism. I saw the faint traces of a ranger uniform before her. A long leg pushed forward and a vicious kick to my side. The amount of power in the kick was absolutely ridiculous. My body lifted off the snow-covered ground and with a scream of pain, I went over the side and down the two-meter drop onto the floor below. Trying to catch my breath, I pushed shakily to my knees, my shotgun landed to the side a few feet away. A quick lift of my head showed me that the three robed figures were coming at an alarming pace. Pulling the revolver free, I lifted it in a quick motion and fired. One cultist dropped. My reaction was a little bit slow due to the fall though, and I managed to squeeze one more shot off that, took out the left thigh of a second, causing the woman's screams to echo out into the wilderness. The third one had reached me, dropping his full weight on top of me. He slapped the 454 out of my grasp and closed around my neck with two beefy hands. Squeezing tight and cutting off my air supply instantly. I thrashed, moving and squirming, trying to get away. Another shot rang out in the forest, followed by a thud off in the distance. I couldn't hear much, my ears were clogged, my vision was fading. He was far too strong at this point, and added too much leverage. I guess this was my time. A thunderclap startled both of us. The man stiffened and fell to the side like he had gotten hit by a sledgehammer, which he might as well have. Bristol pulled herself forward, ragged breast shooting steam into the cold night air. Her rifle fell down as she kneeled next to me and pulled me up to a sitting position. Leaning on each side, we climbed to our feet and grabbed the 454. She held the bottle of tequila up for me to see and didn't even need to say anything. I pulled out the torch and lit the rag. And Bristol reared back like she was throwing a grenade. Her aim was perfect. The Molotov sailed through the air and blew against the side of the tree. The fire spread all along the trunk. Screeches from the tree. A cacophony of all its still living victims. Providing a macabre chorus for its death cry. The tree would burn for quite a while most likely. Come on, let's get out of here. She didn't respond. Tucked under my shoulder, her breathing was a ragged rough, her body hot against mine. We tried to walk, but she held fast. Remember what you said earlier about the seeds? She spoke softly, almost calm, like she had accepted this. I laid her against the ridge and kneeled in front of her, reaching out to push her parka aside and lift her bandages. Small roots sprouted from the wound, which was festering and it was an angry rat. Crab, Yeah, this sucks. I stood there cursing internally. She had the instinct to be a part of her agency. That and she was a fighter, a survivor, a decent person actually. I pulled the revolver and aimed it at her. I really wish that I didn't have to do this. I know. She stared up at me, scared but knowing this was going to have to happen. You aren't going to look away? I never do. Just don't tell me when you're going to... I pulled the trigger. My face didn't change, but I just stood there breathing. Tears made their way down my cheeks, and I pulled a cigarette free and lit it. After the tree had fully burned, I did the same to Bristol, as it was the only way to ensure the destruction of the seeds. I climbed the rise again to see Mike Sandover's body lifeless with a giant hole in his head. I did the sand to his body too, and that of the occultist as well, and then began the long trip back to the Ranger station. I called Brain on the way back, and by the time I was done with the report, I had made it back. The parking lot was empty, celery was gone. I put out a mark at him. There'll be more on that later, and I jumped in the truck. Time to find a bar and get wasted at. End of transcription. There's another one. I'll let you guys know what happened to Celery next time. But until then, stay out of the freaking woods. On a search and rescue mission in the Alaskan wilderness... We discovered something truly unsettling, ridden by wings of darkness. The rustling of the green leaves all around the hunter concealed the squelching of his black boots in the mud. The chilly Alaskan wind swept against him. It probably would have bitten into his skin if not for his thick jackets. Above him, the boundless blue sky and fluffy white clouds at least comforted him. No bad weather for now. His keen brown eyes watched for any signs of danger. Nobody lived anywhere close by. There was no rescue coming if anything had happened. Just what he liked. He felt the heft of his backpack as he hopped over a fallen decaying log. Around his neck, his silver necklace jingled. The hunter sighed. He grabbed it in his dirty, gloved hands, crestfallen eyes studying it. The precious diamonds that encrusted the silver. The gold etchings that read, With you forever, to Shannon, forever. Where had it all gone wrong? His nose picked up on the distinct scent of a freshwater stream. At least he was getting closer, He had known about this area for a while now. It was all on his maps. He had at least done his preparations when he finally decided to leave his old life behind. But he had never been here before. He sighed in relief as he spotted the sight of the rapids. White foam churning around the jagged rocks. The constant rushing sound of the water that had filled the air for the past half an hour or so. Finally he spotted movement. On the banks, stepping across the slick rocks with remarkable agility, was a beautiful, dark-furred river otter. The hunter's hands grubbed against the wood of his bolt-action rifle as he took position against the trees. Taking a moment to confirm that he had the right ammunition, he aimed the gun. Deep breath, and he pulled the trigger. The graceful peace of these surroundings was broken by the deafening thunder crack of his rifle. Underneath the ruffling of a dozen fleeing birds, the hunter stood up, massaging his sore legs, before he carefully walked onto the stream to pick up his game. The river outer was, thankfully, already dead. He hoped it was as painless as possible. It was absolutely beautiful. He admired it stroking its pristine and damp fur. Shannon would have loved it, alive obviously, but she loved otters. Badgers, beavers, and any little furred creature like that, she would have been surprised to see how big the river otters were. The next day, he decided that he would go to the lake. It was a beautiful sight and he desired to see it again. He had gotten married with Shannon on the shores of a lake like this, The dream spot. The start to perfection. He couldn't sleep well anyway. Maybe it would help. He spent the rest of the day sitting on a log, smoking his cigarettes and tidying up his thick, bushy beard a little. He would skip a rock or two into the lake. He could make it six skips. There was nothing better to do in the world than what he was doing, he thought. Except maybe being with her. He shot up from his log. No, but there it was, a figure, a person standing on the other side of the lake, strolling down the banks with carefree apathy. The hunter turned away, unzipping his backpack and snatching his cold binoculars from within, placing it to his eyes as he gave a wave and a shout. The figure glanced at him across the lake. It was a woman, her skin was dark, her hair long and dyed blue. They were dressed in a long-flowing white of a wedding dress. The binoculars fell from his hands, cracking against a rock. Shannon, that was her, in the exact same wedding dress. His heart beat hard against his ribcage as his mind raised, frenzied eyes staring at her, not daring to look away as he squatted down and his hands desperately pawed at the soiled and stones at his feet until he felt his binoculars. When he raised the binoculars to his eyes again, the cracked glass showed on the twisted, warped image of his ex-wife, slowly striding into the frigid blue waters of the lake. More and more of her slowly disappearing into the lake. "'Shannon!' the hunter cried out. He lowered the binoculars, staring out into the vast expanse of the lake where his wife had now vanished to. Amidst the quiet stillness of the lake's surface, there now looked to be no sign of any life. Like something out of a dream, from the low mist near the surface emerged a hand, right in the middle of the lake. She shouldn't have been able to swim that fast, that wasn't possible. His voice was caught in his throat, eyes widened, locked onto that lone hand, until the second hand had emerged and then her face. His wife was no longer wearing the veil or any semblance of a wedding dress, at least from her arms and head, but there she was, raising her index finger on her right hand and beckoning him towards her, into the bitter cold lake that he had never set foot in before. He took a step forward. Feeling his boots nearly slip upon the wet soil and rock, she was right there, small in the distance that she was at, but it seemed she was so close. He would step in and swim to her and get her back in his life. She took another step forward, he could hear her giggling, her gentle voice carried on the mist and winds into his ears. His right boot stepped into the water with a small splash and immediately he felt something snap under his boot. He glanced on reflexively, only for a second, but when he returned his gaze upon her, she was only about ten meters away. It was definitely her. Every facial feature and the thin scar on her left cheek. "'Shannon,' he choked out. "'I'm sorry,' she nodded in reassurance." Giving him a smile full of bloody otter teeth. He felt like he had just been shot by a live wire. Instinct took over and he screamed, scrambling back up the lake shore, his boots slipping once or twice on the slick mud, before he got back on a dry land. His hands flew for his gun and he whipped around with it. But there was no sign of his wife anywhere. The lake lay quiet as if untouched by whatever thing had just swam in. "'No, no, no,' the hunter mumbled to himself, shaking his head to clear it. He hurriedly threw his backpack on and fled back through the woods. He passed his surroundings in a chaotic haze. Trees and rocks rushed past him as he sprinted and jumped across logs and shrubs. He had to get away from the lake, from that thing. He skidded to a stop, Kicking up dirt and decaying leaves at the side of the figure uphill to his left. Mr. Emerson? The hunter blinked. There he was, dressed up in that striped blue shirt, with the same cherry tie. The familiar wrinkled face that never smiled, staring at him with soulless eyes. The hunter could still hear his barking voice yelling at him and the other truckers at any minute flaws in their timing and behavior. He remembered that glare, those beady black eyes silently cursing him when he put in his resignation after Shannon had left him. Mr. Emerson opened his mouth to yell again to chew him up and spit him out. After he growled, he growled exactly like a brown bear, the deafening bellow vibrating deep into his bones as Mr. Emerson's mouth stretched out wider than humanly possible. The insides, a bloodied, shifting, fleshy mass of a hundred different animals, before he suddenly got onto all fours and charged downhill at the hunter. There was not a second of hesitation before the hunter turned and ran, screaming at the top of his lungs. Behind him, he could hear the bounding of hands and feet in the grass, accompanied by these same horrific urs and roars. He could feel hot breath in his heels, the snapping of teeth just inches away from his boots. As he struggled to breathe, the world beginning to blur from exertion. He whipped around, raising his gun and pulling the trigger as hard as he could. The crack of the gunshot rang out, ringing in his ears. The bullet embedded itself inside a tree. But there was no sign of Mr. Emerson anywhere. No tracks or footprints but his own, and not a sound. His head was spinning, his heart pounding from terror and exhaustion. All around him, the fog seemed to limit his vision, these singing and screeching of birds and insects preventing him from hearing if there was anything trying to sneak up on him. Practically collapsing onto the log that he was using as a chair, he threw his backpack off and tended to the fire. A million questions raised through his mind. His thoughts kept returning to Shannon. Why was she at the lake in her wedding dress? And why was Mr. Emerson back to hound him once more and the noises that he made? A part of him considered returning to the lake again, if it was really Shannon. He shook the thought out of his head. He was heading to the cabin tomorrow and then getting the heck out back to civilization. There was something out here that didn't want him here, and he wouldn't be stupid enough to stay. Nights were scary to most out here, but he never found it that bad. Sure, there were animals like wolves out prowling, but they didn't go anywhere near humans, and especially not fire. So long as he kept his fire going, there wasn't much to worry about. He shivered as he shoveled some sardines into his mouth from a can. While it was definitely colder... There was a strange, musky otter smell too, and he cursed the otter that he had hunted yesterday. He had thrown it in a cooler box, but he wondered if the stench was worth it. His hands brushed past the necklace that he wore. The hunter gripped it, studying it, pondering and contemplating. Perhaps it was some curse that she had put on him. She was always into all the weird crystals and witchcraft stuff that he had brushed off as a harmless obsession. Tomorrow, he would have to keep a careful watch out for any more figures watching him. He pursed his lips. What if he died? What if on the walk to the hunting camp tomorrow, he was dragged away by whatever the thing was? The question settled like an anchor in his heart. There would be no one to really mourn him. He had cut ties with everyone to come to Alaska. If he left a message, who would he even leave it for? a woman who now hated him. The hunter pulled out his video camera, grinding his teeth in anticipation as it booted up before setting it to record himself. Through the screen, the darkness around him seemed all the more impenetrable. Uh, So, uh, hey Shannon, or whoever might find this, it's a beautiful night out here and it's starting to get cold and all. He said, quickly settling into the vlogging voice he used to do so often. I'm just uh, attending the fire tonight. It's really beautiful out here. Uh, I'm repeating. Oh yeah, I got something to show you. He stood up, carrying the camera along with him. His face was shrouded in shadow, making for some pretty terrible footage, but... He decided to let it keep playing as he reached into his tent and pulled out an astonishingly large caribou antler, freshly cleaned just a day ago. I didn't kill a caribou, I just kind of found it. Must have broken off, uh, poor animal. And Can you see it? Dang, this camera really sucks at night. Unevolved like my eyes. He joked as he pulled the antler into the open, where the warm, comforting glow of the fire lit it up. I'm there. Now you can see it. I'm just going to chill here by the fire for a while and then head into the tent to sleep. Um, to Shannon. If you ever get this, just tell me if you still hate me. You probably do. I just wanted to say that I really hope you didn't send anything after me. The hunter paused, staring at the screen, watching his own face shadowed by the movement of the flames the darkness behind him a solid black sheet. Bye. He stopped the recording and switched the camera off, carefully slotting it into the camera bag and sliding it into his tent. The hunter sat back down at the log and stared into the fire for a moment. Beyond it, the forest barely allowed much moonlight in. He stared up into the trees, their branches stretching out like fingers of a dark god. One of them looked like there was some large creature sitting on it, staring at him. Dread creeped into him as slowly as the thing on the tree moved when it stretched out its tail and limbs and dashed downwards into the darkness faster than any animal could move. He could hear the thing moving around his camp, its steps echoing into the forest. He gripped onto his gun. It wouldn't come close, he tried to reassure himself. Animals feared fire. Uneasily, he crawled towards his tent, knees scraping on the dirt and rocks until he huddled within the walls of a thin cloth. It was roaring, screeching, cawing, hissing, a thousand different animal voices that were slowly pruned away until he could hear it on the other side of his tent. I'm sorry, but it's not working out. Shannon's voice came from the other side of the tent. His eyes widened. The familiar words dragged him back to them standing in the kitchen, a cheese sandwich cooking in the oven. No, he could only gasp. You're just not respecting me enough. I'm gathering my stuff and moving to Maria's. I've talked to my lawyer. I'll be getting back to you. It said from the other side of the tent. You freaking monster! Don't you dare go there! He warned. Bitter hate swelling in his voice as he aimed his gun. It reached its hand out and pressed on the other side. It was her. Even the ring she used to wear. Don't yell at me about that. I don't want to hear it. I'm leaving right now, Shannon said. The hunter felt his left hand move almost uncontrollably, stretching out, yearning to touch her, to hold her hand again. Hot tears streamed down his cheeks as he shakily inched closer to her on the other side. Please, please don't go, he begged. Come out and join me. The voice broke from the script. The hunter froze, sitting with his left hand outstretched, right hand in the gun, staring at the silhouette of the hand on the tent, which slowly seemed to morph and warp as she pulled away. It's this you want, isn't it? The hunter yanked the cooler box open, gripping the rigid frozen otter in his hand, and tossing it out of the tent, where it landed out of his constrained field of view. Take it and leave me the heck alone. I'm sorry I killed it. Just leave. The hunter stared into the deep abyss of the woods, at the all-consuming night that hid from view, the thing after him. The now concealed the approach of the dripping wet claws that sunk into the damp soil behind him, accompanied by the gnawing of vicious teeth on the bark of the trees. The hunter shrank ever closer to the fire, clutching onto his rifle like his life depended on it. A few meters away, he could hear his wife laugh, the comforting trill of her voice sending shivers down his spine as his finger rested on the trigger. Fire and gunpowder were the only thing separating him from whatever hellish fate awaited, something that knew everything about him, that much he realized. All he needed to do was wait. Wait and pray. Pray that the light of the fire and the glint of the barrel of his gun was enough to stop the thing pretending to be his wife from reaching out a meter through the thin cloth of his tent and snatching him into the darkness. The hunter woke up with a start, yelling and swinging his gun like a club. Graceful warm sunlight streamed through the fabric of his tent and illuminated the wet soil and grass of his campsite. His heart pounding, the hunter emerged from his tent like a rabbit from a burrow, eyes darting left and right in the morning mist. His fire was still going, mercifully, and he warmed up around it, rubbing his trembling hands. There was no sign of anything the only sounds being a single singing bird. Though that could be it, watching him from above. He stared up, and the tops of the trees seemed to stretch on higher than he thought into the peaceful sky. His attention was caught at the sight of his log, or rather, the giant otter paw prints in the soil right behind where he had been seated in the night. It was time to go. It took over an hour to properly pack what he needed, with his backpack strapped on and walking stick in hand, he set off from his campsite. He had made it a few steps before something crunched under his boot. It was the otter that he had thrown out yesterday. It had been devoured ravenously, leaving only a few strips of it hanging onto its skeleton. Violent teeth marks were carved into the bone, and the otter had been ripped apart. Every animal call, every falling branch made him jump during his hike to the cabin. He followed the river upstream, the reverse of the path that had led him to his campsite in the first place. He didn't need a map. He knew the route very well. It took the rest of the day before he finally stepped under the creaking porch of the log cabin. Unlocking it with his key, he dropped his bag off by the door and locked it behind him. Removing his shoes and jacket, he boiled some water, set the fire going, and a few hours later climbed into bed. All safe now, he reassured himself, as he pulled the blanket over him, sighing in relief. A snapping branch quickly shook him free of his misconception. In the dark tree line, he could see many, many reflecting, shiny eyes, too many to count, but they quickly shifted, clumping and dissolving together until there were only two glowing eyes staring at him through the window, and then, like the wind, it was gone. He heard his porch creak, and then it spoke again, but not in the voice of Shannon anymore. He recognized this voice far more clearly. So, uh, hey, whoever is listening to this came his vlogging voice from outside the cabin. It's a beautiful night for hunting. The moon is covered in clouds and everything is asleep. I'm just on the prowl again, and now I'm going to slide underneath the doorframe. The hunter couldn't move. Every instinct in his brain was forcing him to stay absolutely still, and that he did. Hey, and now I'm in. I've got something to show you. Let me just crawl on the ceiling for this one. We just need to find him. I know that he's awake. His vision is unevolved, the same as when his kind first walked here across the ice. The hunter could hear scraping on the ceiling on the other side of the log cabin, as well as the soft, constant dripping of water onto the floor. He sat up, eyeing his gun by the fireplace. If he could just step off the bed and sprint over. I'm under his bed. His voice came from under the bed. I really hope he steps off, even just with one foot, and then I'll reach out and grab him. He didn't move an inch further. There was nothing but cold, helpless silence around him for a while. Bye. The voice broke the silence just for a word before waiting again. The hunter pulled his leg back on. If he could just grab his gun, it seemed so close. Official report from Alaska Department of Public Safety. State troopers in a search and rescue mission accidentally discovered the body of a man lying in his bed in a hunting cabin. Forensics determined that he had been deceased for at least four months. Cause of death, dehydration. Now, I'm a marine biologist and I've discovered something beyond the depths. Written by XX Ashura XX. This is not an easy story to tell. Just thinking about what happened still gives me chills. Lately, I've been seeing a therapist to talk about what I saw. About what lives amongst us humans. That lives within the darkest depths of the ocean. However, he never seems to believe me. He tends to blame everything I saw on my trauma and tells me that my mind is making up these thoughts that aren't truly real. I am writing this now in hopes that you, whoever you are, will believe my story. Well, here it is. I've been working as a marine biologist for quite some time, a few years to say the least. I used to love everything about the ocean. I was so mesmerized by it all. The glistening water, the plants, the sea life, even the size was all the more reason on why I became a marine biologist. It was the middle of October and a higher up for my research team gave me a call about a new unexplored region somewhere off the coast of the Pacific. Now, you may think somewhere so far on the ocean may have made me decline the decision to go and explore such a vast open area, but no. In fact, just the thought of the idea made me ecstatic. I accepted the offer, made the arrangements, and quickly set off. The research team consisted of four people. Mike, Liz, my best friend Jackson, and myself. Together, we have explored all kinds of places, discovered the most bizarre sets of animal life, and even became the first group to do a deep-sea dive inside the Mariana Trench. We were a truly fierce team, and every dive that we took, every exploration we've set out on, it was all done with little to no fear. I've always been fond of the ocean, yes, but I can't recall the time where I was actually scared of it. Well, that is up until now. We set off early morning, wasting no time at all to get to our destination. So, what do you think will be out there? I don't know, a new species maybe. Mike and Liz loved to discover new types of animals while me and Jackson were more fond of the plant life. Hey, if so, let's hope it's nothing big enough to eat us, said Jackson approaching the side of the boat. He gazed out at the open body of water, watching the city slowly disappear from our view. He closed his eyes and inhaled deeply. Ah, you smell that. The fresh air of... Open adventures, said our captain, cutting off Jackson as he spoke. Now, let's try not to be out here for too long, you understand. It's an area that we do not know of. We all agreed and began making plans on what specific things to keep an eye on. Well, being so far out, there's obviously not going to be any type of ground level whatsoever, and the chances of us even getting an inch close to it are very slim. Yeah, Mike's right. We should have the two of us search for unknown species near the surface, and the other two explore deeper, said Jackson caressing the lining of his jaw as a sign of thought. It was no surprise that Mike and Liz would be together. They're practically partners in crime. How about me and Jackson dive down? Evan and Liz, you guys stay at the top. This was surprising to all of us. Why the sudden change? I questioned, glancing over at Liz. Oh, I don't know. Just thought that we'd swap out partners for once. Yeah. Yeah. Jackson put his hand on Mike's shoulder. Idiot, we're all partners here, but I guess switching it up a bit wouldn't hurt. Liz approached me with a cheerful look. Then it settled. Let's make this a great exploration. Time went by pretty fast, and it was finally time for us to take our dive. As I approached the deck, Mike and Liz already had their gear on, and Jackson was just about to dive in. "'Come on, hurry up and put that last little bit of gear on and let's get going.' Mike sounded so excited, more than usual, in fact. "'Yeah, yeah, just give me a sec.' After finally putting on the last bit, I hurried over to the side of the boat. Jackson and Mike dropped in first, and then Liz. However, before I could get my chance to touch the water, our captain rushed out. Uh, "'Picking up signs of a storm on the radar, which is quite odd.' I didn't see any type of signs of a storm approaching until now. You guys better hurry back. And then there was a loud boom. A nice sized wave hit the blind side of the boat, sending me flying off into the water and pushing the boat into the others. I heard and put on my mask as the power of the wave forced me down under. I watched Mike and Jackson get pushed back further and eventually dragged down by the follow up of more waves. I grabbed a hold of Liz's arms before she could get pulled away any further, and we both swam up. Jesus, Captain, are you... Oh my God. What? What is it? I followed Liz's eyes up, and saw a giant, monstrous wave approach us, ready to crash down. Crash down right onto the boat. Hey, Captain! Captain! The sound of the water crashing and flowing in all sorts of directions snapped me back. I tried to keep calm, but in all my years, I had never been in this type of situation before. Liz, where's Liz? I looked around, giving myself a headache due to how fast I turned my head. Crackling. Evan, I'm right, I'm right here. The radio sounded distorted and Liz was almost unrecognizable. Liz, Liz, can you hear me? Uh, what the heck just happened? Questioned Jackson over the staticky radio. We got hit and I'm too far under to see the boat. Okay, okay, Um, let me just... Jackson, you there? Jesus, Evan, please tell me you're seeing what I'm seeing. Said Liz, her voice sounding shaky. Confused, I looked around into my horror. I saw it. It looked like the edge of the world. Just how deep were we? The ground ended off in a completely straight line. And beyond that was nothing. Nothing but pitch black darkness. What the heck is a cliff doing here? Mike, oh God, I thought that we lost you. Said Liz in worry. Oh nah, still here. Jackson, Evan. Mom am here, but we lost comms with Jackson. Wait, I think I see him. Look down at the edge. Me and Liz both looked down and saw Jackson, slowly moving off of the edge. Jackson, what the heck are you doing? Get back up here right now. I tried to stop him. We all did, but he wouldn't listen. I do not know what happened to him, but I can still hear the words in my head. The final words that Jackson said before. As Jackson slowly came off the edge he said something that threw all three of us off And do you see it It's down there waiting waiting for the right moment What are you talking about Jackson what's waiting Just come on back and let's get out of here please Jackson let out a small gasp It says thank you thank you for awakening me You have set me free And then, from a calming voice to the sound of fear, he said, Oh my god, guys, we shouldn't have come here. We aren't alone. Jackson started violently thrashing his arms, trying to swim up and away from the dark abyss. It's coming. Oh god, it's coming. It's gonna destroy us all. And that's when we finally saw it. A long, dark, greenish, and sort of scaly long body quickly rushed up. In size, it was massive, about the size of four great-sized mansions. But even then, I don't think even that is enough to explain just how huge the thing was. I watched Jackson get swallowed by it whole. The mouth area was so dang huge that it took up most of the abyss. The teeth were the size of giant icy glaciers and were very, very sharp. However. That was in the scariest part about its mouth. What frightened me the most was the rows of teeth the thing had. In a circular look, I saw five rows of teeth stick out. Holy crap, said Mike. The creature then took off further away. We watched for what felt like ten minutes. Its body swam away. And then from the darkness, I saw two giant white lights... Though they weren't lights at all, they were the creature's pupils as its face slowly approached us. It spoke to us, its voice deep and stern. You do not belong. You have been abandoned soon. You will be forgotten as well. I saw its body make all kinds of curves and rotations in the distance. There seemed to be no end to it. Mike, Mike, what are you doing? Liz questioned in terror. I looked down to see Mike moving towards the creature. I do not belong. I've been abandoned and I will soon be forgotten. I am nothing. And those were Mike's last words. As I saw him move ever so slightly towards the creature, almost as if he was being pulled into it. I looked at the creature and saw its mouth. Its mouth was open, and it stretched so far out that it could fit multiple of our boats inside of it. As I stared at it, I found myself muttering something. I do, I do not, I do not belong. The same words as said by Mike. I quickly forced myself to turn away. Liz, turn away now. But she was nowhere to be found. I looked down once more and saw her, repeating the same words as Mike, and slowly moving towards the creature's mouth. No. I wanted to say something, believe me I did, but I just couldn't. I knew that I wouldn't be able to get through to her, and I knew what was going to happen if I stayed any longer. I quickly began to swim up as my heart pounded inside my chest. Please, please let me make it. In the distance, I saw the boat slowly sinking down to the ground. Oh god, no. The surface slowly began to appear, just a little more. And then, after what felt like forever, I finally broke the surface and began to swim faster than I've ever swam in my life. I do not know what direction I was heading in, but I did not care, just as long as it wasn't in the same direction as that thing. I don't even think that I can call it a creature anymore. I think I swam for about 15 minutes before my arms got tired, and my legs began to give out on me. There was nothing in sight, and I soon gave up hope. I laid myself back and floated, and as I did I began to have flashbacks, flashbacks that went back to when I first discovered the ocean to when my parents had took me swimming at the beach for the first time. It all appeared to me as a blur, but it slowly faded away into darkness. I awoke inside of a hospital. Doctors surrounded me as I tried to keep my eyes open. Stay still and don't move. Jackson, Mike, the search team were not able to find your friends, nor the boat. It's lucky they even found you. It was then that I had one last flashback, one last image in my brain. It was a vision of the thing, the thing that took my friends, Jackson and Mike Liz, all long gone. Doctors say that I ended up fainting shortly after waking up and I became unresponsive. I then went into a short-term coma, one only lasting a few weeks to a month. When I woke up, my hospital room was empty but the space around me was filled with get-well cards and colorful balloons by my bedside. I was later checked out of the hospital and got to return to my home. Now, did I return back to work? Of course not. I'll never go back, not after what had happened. After a while, I began experiencing night terrors and hallucinations every once in a while. Heck, I even developed thalassophobia. The fear of deep bodies of water, just like the ocean. I soon started to feel like I was losing my mind. I started hearing voices in my head, and visions of watching my friends be swallowed by that monstrous thing. My entire life felt like it was falling apart, which is why I eventually ended up going to a therapist, but even he couldn't help. Now, I find myself writing this not knowing when to end it. But what I do know is that we are not alone, and this world does not belong to us. Update Monday evening, 8.45pm, Evan Parker was found deceased in his own home, caused self-inflicted. Evan Parker was found dangling in his basement from one of the pipes. From the looks of it, he had been like that for days. Upon entering his house, the team saw writing written all over the walls of the living room and basement, some sort of saying that read, I do not belong. I have been abandoned and I will soon be forgotten. I am nothing. Under his body, there was a different saying. It read, We are not alone. If you want to survive past 2040, read this guide, written by Rowan Elders. Who am I? I'm a time traveler from the year 2060. My name is Rowan Elders, but that isn't important. The only thing you really need to know about me is that I have your best interest at heart. NFAQ. Why are you posting this here? There are a massive amount of places that I can post this on the internet, but very few of those places would actually read the entire thing. Even though you won't think that I'm serious. If you need to think this is some twisted entertainment in order to absorb the information, then I hope you're entertained. What caused the apocalypse? I have no idea. There's no internet to look it up, no books to read about it, no way to really find any information on the topic. The only reason that I really know it happened in 2040 is because my parents had told me about it. How did you get to the year 2022? I have no idea what sent me here or why I'm here, or if I can change anything, but I might as well do my best, right? If you don't know how to time travel or what caused the apocalypse, why am I even reading this? Did you even look at the title? This isn't about stopping the apocalypse, it's about helping as many people survive it as possible. And with that out of the way, let me start to tell you, for lack of a better phrase, what the apocalypse is, and some tips on how to survive it. Now what is the apocalypse? The apocalypse? I don't know what caused it, but I do know that it wasn't nuclear. Something just happened. As far as I'm aware, it affected people at random. The really lucky ones died instantly. Some, according to my dad it was around 10%, were completely unaffected, and the rest were turned into mindless monsters. If you want to survive, follow these 11 rules. 1. If you see an otherworldly light in the distance while traveling at night, ignore it at all cost. They're just trying to lure you in. 2. Don't go into the forest or the ocean. That's where the worst things live. 3. If you hear something screaming the words, hey, help me! Close your eyes, shut your mouth, and stand as still as possible. Even if you're currently running away from something, What the callers will do to you is infinitely worse than anything you can imagine. 4. If the stars go out, get cover immediately. 5. If you see a blue translucent triangle hovering a foot above the ground, step into it. We don't know where they lead, but it has to be better than here. 6. Don't drink any cans labeled paraquant. They didn't exist before all of this had happened, and there's no way of telling what exactly will happen to you, but I can guarantee that it won't be good. 7. Don't eat the meat of any of the monsters you kill. Nothing might happen the first time that you do it, but eventually you won't be able to stop. 8. When you're dreaming, if you see a man wearing a suit and tie trying to give you things for free or some undisclosed amount... Don't take any of it. You can't pay him back. 9. If you find a doorway that's completely unconnected to any other structure, don't go through. I have absolutely no idea what's on the other side, but I have heard the screaming that comes from it. 10. Do not pray. The angels aren't here to help you. Don't try to get their attention. The same goes for demons. 11. In the event that you find yourself being followed by an exact copy of yourself, ignore it for as long as possible. It's lying to you, and no matter what it says, it can't help you. I have transcribed several entries from the notebook I used to document monstrosities below. Please note that the examples I chose are not the most dangerous, but rather the most common. Name Carpal. Appearance. It looks to be a ball of pale, outstretched arms, with a mouth on each end. The center of the being is some kind of gooey black mass. Behavior. Whenever any human comes within 10 yards of it, it will open the mouths on its hands and release a high pitched scream, capable of shattering the eardrums of anyone too close. How to kill. The gooey center mass seems to be extremely flammable, and while igniting it will cause it to begin screaming. Any damage that it would cause can be avoided with earplugs. Sometimes, these can be useful to distract other things. Name. The beggar. Appearance. Extremely similar to a blobfish, but roughly 6 feet tall on average. Behavior. The beggar will do exactly as its name suggests. It begs for death. If you get close enough to try and dispatch it with a knife, a tentacle will emerge from its mouth, wrapping around the torso of whoever comes near it, pulling them into the mouth filled with thousands of razor sharp rotating teeth. How to Kill There has not been a method found to consistently dispatch the beggar. Bullets seem to do nothing and fire just makes it beg louder. Avoid if possible. Name, Kruors. Appearance, a 10-foot-tall humanoid very malnourished, completely covered in thick black scales, save for its giant white eyes, and a mouth permanently curled into a giant smile. Behavior, it seems not hostile. It simply watches from a distance ...never moving closer or farther away. I once knew a guy who tried to chase one down and catch it. I found his body several days later. His eyes ripped out. When I asked him if he was alright... ...he just screamed and gibbered about his blood being poisoned. He put himself down a few minutes later. How to kill. Just avoid. It doesn't seem to be worth the ammo... This is the best that I can do for now, but I will find time to post more guides in the future. Stay safe out there. Hi everyone. While they believe the first entry in this guide works well to give you a vague idea of what not to do if and when you find yourself in this horrible world, but I would ideally like to expand on each rule, to tell what I know about it, what you should do if you break that rule and possibly tell the story about it too. The rule, 2A, don't go into the forest. If you break the rule, just don't. There's no reason to do so, but if you do, then you run the gambit of being eaten by predators like wood bears and dags, or never leaving. Why you shouldn't enter the forest. From what I've seen of your time, most forests seem to be relatively harmless, in some cases even entirely safe. But after the year 2040, this is not the case. Forests have become something similar to an ocean. The trees on the edge are still a normal size, but the farther you go in, the larger they get, and the worse you'll find. While I've never been dumb enough to enter a forest, I have been told stories of what lies within. Something that looks like it used to be a bear, completely devoid of fur roughly the size of a house, carnivorous beasts that look like the forgotten children of deer and snakes, and a strange pale humanoid creature with a long neck, a creepy smile, and spindly limbs. It's worth noting that I've only ever seen the last one, the first two I've heard about from an acquaintance that managed to enter the forest and survive. He said that if you manage to go deep enough, you will find things that can't exist. And while I had considered a listing out what exactly he told me, I thought that it may be more interesting to simply transcribe one of his stories. Please bear in mind that I haven't spoken to him in years, and even when I did know him, he wasn't all there mentally. Jay's story. I don't know why I did it. It could have been curiosity or a desire to learn what lies beyond the shadow cast by a canopy of countless trees. Or hack even boredom, but for whatever reason, I didn't stop after a few steps this time. You already know about the dikes and the wood bears, but I found so much worse in the depths of that forest. When I noticed the first one, I thought that I was just seeing things. At a glance, it looked like any other tree, but the longer I looked at it, the weirder it became. It was just a few shades too light to be tree bark. And it made a constant, quiet, low-groaning sound. And the thing was sticky to the touch. I just felt uncomfortable being around it. And so I moved on. Every now and then, I would find another, but I just considered it a surprisingly benign addition to this awful world. After hours of hiding and carefully making my way through the forest, I found something even stranger. A house. And I don't mean no new house, That someone had made in the forest. I mean a house that was made with old construction methods. From before the world went to crap. The entire thing was falling apart. The roof was half caved in. The door was jammed. And almost all of the windows were smashed. But these cellar doors were perfectly preserved. More than that actually. They were like new. No damage. No rust. Nothing. When I opened them. They didn't even squeak. Now, of course, there weren't any lights and I didn't have a flashlight, but I did have my lighter. I made my way down into it, and the stairs were perfect too. They didn't creak like an old house would, and they weren't damaged. Not even so much as scratched. But that was just the beginning. When I got to the bottom, there was a large room, lined with shelves containing a variety of um, questionable articles. On the right side, there was a jar full of murky liquid containing what looked to be the head of a human on a metal spider-like body, an axe covered in a blackish-red substance, and the remains of a gigantic spider-like thing with two sets of legs, a bottle of sriracha glued to the shelf, and filled with some kind of black liquid that seemed to move on its own desperately trying to escape. On the left side, there was a human skull that had the word Dave written on it, with what I hope was red ink and a book titled What the Heck Did I Just Read? But the really strange thing was the statue carved into the wall. Well, I call it a statue, but it was more of a shrine. The figure carved into the wall was almost humanoid. Almost. Its head was covered in eyes and tentacles. Two wings were outstretched behind it, and it was rising up from what looked to be a body of water. I would have taken time to draw the thing, but just then, I heard loud stompy footsteps coming from the ceiling. That scared me so bad that I dropped my lighter onto the floor and noticed that it was covered in dried blood. I didn't stop to see whatever put the blood there or to pick up the lighter. I just took off out of the basement. Now, any smart person would have stopped and left the woods, but as you unfortunately know, I am not smart. These strange trees that I mentioned before kept getting more and more common. I went from finding one every couple of hours to every few minutes, to always having at least ten around me at a time. At some point when I hid behind one to avoid a horde of digs, I finally figured out what was so strange about them it was covered in skin. Pale, clammy, human skin. The more that I pressed my hands into it, the more they sank in. I pressed my hand into it, down to my wrist for, a uh, science. I was barely able to pull myself out, and when I did, the skin on the tree had stretched out, the imprint of a face draining against the skin, as if it were trying to escape the tree. Help me the voice was raspy and garbled like the voice was coming from underwater and then suddenly the tree was covered in outlines of faces and arms as at least a dozen different people called out either screaming or rasping but all begging for help that was the last draw i took off back where i came from not bothering to be stealthy or careful just trying to get out of there as soon as possible Every skin tree I passed was covered in the outlines of people calling out, except for one. I hadn't noticed it when I had first passed. I was uh, too distracted, but the tree next to the old house was covered in bodies in various states of decay, each stuck to the tree upside down with a massive cut on their throat. Like whoever had put them there had drained all of their blood out of them first. I took the only look back of my entire run as I passed the house, seeing someone, or something standing on the second floor, where the roof looked like it had been caved in. I couldn't really make out their features. All I could see were two eyes that looked slightly too large to be human, and a massive grin. End of Jay's story. Please, do not go into the forest. While Jay is the only person that's ever told me about what can be found in the deepest parts, I've heard countless stories about people deciding to go exploring and never coming back, and I don't take how easily he managed to traverse it as an indicator of how it actually is, as I intentionally left out methods he explained for avoiding bears and eggs, just to ensure that none of you would go in and explore it if given the chance. Other questions from my last post. Please note that some have been paraphrased for sake of brevity. If I skipped over an important aspect of your question, or there is some kind of other issue, feel free to leave a comment below, and I will either fix it or address it in the next part. Why not post everywhere and closer to the actual apocalypse? Well, for the first part of that question, please see the Why are you posting this here?" section on my prior post. For the second part, Because I would assume that putting something on the internet and giving it 10 years to spread is probably better than giving it a few months or even days. But feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Is this satire? Please see the why are you posting this year section of my prior post. How do you have such a good grammar? If you live in the year 2060 in a post-apocalypse, I would assume most of the books have been destroyed. That's a fair assumption, but it's wrong. I've read plenty of books and have had a fair amount of practice writing since. I've kept at least one journal with me since I was 15. Why shouldn't we pray to the angels and who even are they? I don't know who they are exactly or even if they are angels. What I know about them, I've learned mostly through second-hand stories or rumors. But most sources say that prayer can draw them to you. I have actually seen someone pray once, knowing what was coming, and I left him to his own devices. Three hours later, I came back, and I found a skeleton stripped bare of all flesh. Did your parents travel with you to our time? No, they passed away about five years before I traveled here. though thought it might have been longer. My parents were the ones that usually kept track of the year. To celebrate Christmas and my birthday and after they passed, I stopped keeping track of time. Now that I've touched on the forest, it's probably a good time to talk about what the oceans will look like in the future. I've seen images of what lies in the depths of your oceans today. Eyeless monsters that have a taste for blood, creatures with bioluminescence that they use to lure things into their gaping maw, and all manner of giant monsters, but it gets so much worse in the future. Of course, I have never seen the depths of the ocean, or what lies within in the future, but I have seen what lives in the shallows, and things that have ended up on the beach. What lives in the shallows? The shore trap. I have never seen the full body of this monster, but I have on several occasions witnessed horrible black jaws rise from the water, full of needlepoint teeth, only to grab someone or something, and drag them into the shallow wet sand, kicking and screaming. The tongue. Occasionally, while near the beach, we'll hear random bubbling, like tongue sounds, and later, near where you've heard those sounds, you may find a ball of glass or a chunk of burnt meat. There are small, crustacean-like creatures that live in the sand, just like the shore trap. As far as I can tell, they seem to have some kind of relation to the peacock mantis shrimp which exists today. I mostly guess this, as they can snap their claws or cause a chemical reaction hot enough to melt glass and cook meat instantly. The major difference between these is that the shrimp that I have mentioned previously is their size and coloration. Tunks are usually around a foot long, with the largest I've ever seen growing to be about 3 feet long. And they're usually a yellowish, beige color, the exact coloration of sand Please note that these are not all the creatures that live in the shallows. Just a couple that should help you extrapolate these sort of things that live there. What I have found washed up on the beach. Water people. Now I know it's not a very good name, but I didn't come up with it. Every so often, I'll find the body of something that looks a lot like a person washed up on the beach, but with a few key differences. Their hands and feet are webbed, They have gray, smooth skin, blank yellow glowing eyes, and a mouth full of rows of serrated, triangular teeth. I once found one that was still alive, missing an arm, and bleeding a disgusting-smelling greenish-red blood. When I tried to talk to it and help it out, it lunged for me, trying to sink its teeth into my leg. I think it's safe to say that these are likely hostile and should be avoided, a a large 20-30 foot long snake-like monster with a long, slender body, six heads full of razor-sharp teeth, and twelve tails ending in large fins. I can only describe what this one looks like based on two separate bodies that I found, and as such may actually look somewhat different from how I describe it here. The first body that I had found had large chunks taken out of it, as if it had been eaten by a school of smaller creatures, and the second one was half-eaten, its head and neck still attached by little more than a thick strap of flesh. The bite mark on the creature looked smooth and uniform, as if something far larger than it had been trying to eat it in a single bite. I don't know. I refuse to give this one an actual name, as I dearly hope that it is merely an isolated instance and not something that exists commonly in the oceans. I only found the decayed remnants of a head, but it was 30 feet long to be specific, 31 feet and 7 inches. I measured it. It looked crocodilian with round cone-like teeth. That's all the details that I have on it. I have never seen what it looks like as a whole, and I never want to. And I especially never want to see whatever had killed it. Just so you're aware, I typically don't list out every single monstrosity or creature that I know of, but in this case, I have listed out every single monstrosity that I've ever found washed up on the beach. Why the ocean can be useful Now, despite everything that I've just typed, there are still reasons to stay near the beach. Other living creatures like dakes and crorexes will avoid going anywhere near it. Fishing can be useful for finding food. And if you can manage it, then potable water can be made from seawater. Tips for fishing Don't eat anything that looks like an abomination. It probably is and eating them can cause issues. Don't eat fish with human eyes either. If something rips the fishing rod out of your hand, do not go in after it. Make sure to stay out of the water while fishing. If you see two light orange lights right next to each other watching you, Those are eyes. You're done for the day. Leave immediately. Aside from that, it's common sense and logic apply. Other. Look up elsewhere how to make a seawater purifier. It's fairly easy given that you have the right tools. Mine, for example, was a metal pan with a lid that had a hole in the top, combined with a pipe that let boiled water rise up and then pass into a separate container. Good luck to all of you. If you have any questions about what was written here, feel free to leave a comment below and if I can, I'll answer it. And if there are a lot of them, then I'll answer them at the end of my next guide. Now, let's get into rule number eight and the man involved with it. The man in question is typically described as wearing a suit and tie with an average build and a normal face, hair that ranges between black, blonde, and every color in between, and dark brown almost black eyes. He never goes by any one name consistently, but my father always called him Morpheus. If you encounter him in your dream, two things will occur instantaneously. First, you will realize that you're dreaming, and second, the location of your dream will instantly shift, no longer be an abstract, and instead taking place somewhere pleasant that no longer exists like a bar or a restaurant, and even in some cases your child at home. He will try to offer you whatever you want most of the time, things like specific foods, houses, weapons, and so on. You must not accept. Whatever he offers you will be tempting, but there is always a price, and that price usually involves blood. Below is a story that I pieced together based on my father's journal in conversations that I've had with him and others. Near what is currently the state of Florida, I met a man who accepted such an offer. Stephen Hall was over 60 years old and he had been having the same dream every day for the last week. He would always step into a bar with the knowledge that he was dreaming. Every time he would walk and sit down in front of the bartender and order three shots of vodka and down each one. By the time that he had finished the third, A man would always appear and say, Wow, that was impressive. Let me buy you a few more. Hours would go by with the two of them chatting and drinking until the man would stop, look at his watch and ask, I've got an offer for you. How about I give you? Each dream he offered something different. It started with five bottles of whiskey and then grew to be a new ring for his wife for their up-and-coming anniversary. Each offer was more luxurious than the last but Stephen had managed to survive 40 years in this horrible apocalyptic world and knowing that nothing was ever free he always gave the same answer. No thanks, I have everything that I could want and he continued to give the answer until his wife got sick. Helen Hall had contracted a horrible illness out of nowhere and the two were careful. They always boiled their water before drinking it made sure to cook their food thoroughly, and avoided other people as much as they could. But despite all of that, Helen became deathly ill. Stephen did what he could to take care of her, nursing her fever, asking people that he knew, like my father, if he had anything that could help, and searching the abandoned cities for any kind of medicine. Unfortunately, he failed on every account, and when he got back from searching, his wife was practically gone. The only thing that he could do was make her as comfortable as possible and stay with her until the end. That night, he had one more dream about Morpheus, this time offering him medicine that was capable of saving his wife. "'What's the catch?' Stephen asked, staring at the little orange bottle full of bright red pills. "'Catch? There is no catch, Mr. Hall. I only want you to do one thing for me.' then you can wake up and move poor suffering Helen away from that precipice that she's standing on. Morpheus lifted his glass, finishing his third Bloody Mary. The sign he usually gave Stephen to tell him that the dream was almost over. What do I need to do? he asked, struggling to keep himself calm. I'm afraid that I can't tell you that, however. I can assure you that what I'm asking... ...will not involve harming your wife in any way, shape, or form. As I mentioned earlier, Stephen was a smart guy... ...and he knew that this deal would probably get him killed. But he didn't care. He loved his wife more than anything else. And as far as he was concerned... ...the world could burn if it meant that she would be okay. The two shook hands and Stephen woke up. The knowledge of what he needed to do firmly resting in his mind... He reached into his pocket and pulled out a orange pill bottle, a single big red Joe capsule sitting inside. Stephen managed to get the pill down her throat, left several gallons of water for her to drink, and a note explaining what had happened. My father, curious to know how his friends were doing, left my mother and me to check it out. He found the note in the halls, a makeshift shelter, and a set of wet, oily footprints trailing off from Helen's bed. He followed them for as long as possible. Every ten steps or so, the footprints shifted a little bit, becoming less and less human until they had reached a river. At this point, they stopped entirely, with no sign that anything had ever left the water. My father either had no idea what exactly happened to Stephen or chose not to write it down. But either way, days later, he found what was left of him. All of the skin had been peeled off of his legs and arms and both of his feet, and his left hand was missing. Massive bites were taken out of his skinless parts of flesh, with large, malformed footprints walking towards the body and away from it. The thing my father always told me was strange, was that Helen didn't have the normal flu-like symptoms, but instead reacted like she was poisoned. When he had brought this up to Stephen while he was looking for help, he had dismissed it, stating that they always ate and drank the same thing. So the only way she could have been poisoned was if someone had managed to do it while they were asleep, without waking either of them up, and that was impossible, since they were both such light sleepers. If you ever see a man in your dreams that's offering you things without telling you what you need to do in return, do not accept What he gives you is unlikely to help, and the cost is more than you may first think. Warning, if you ever drink a can of Paraquant and find that you haven't instantly died, throw up immediately. Description, standard energy drink can roughly 8.5 inches tall, with a diameter of around 3 inches. Lacking any kind of nutritional info on the side, bright orange with the word Paraquant, spelled exactly as written on the side, at a 45-degree angle in golden letters. I've heard rumors about its origins. Some say that it washed up on the beaches, completely dry despite having just been in the ocean. Others say that it just appeared on store shelves after everything went to crap, and others still have said that it appeared in their packs when they were most desperate for a drink. Generally, only a few things happen to those that drink paraquant, the most common being instant death, with no obvious injuries or issues, like the person's heart just stopped beating. An unlucky few suffer hallucinations for the rest of their usually short lives, seeing things like giant octopus-men hybrids hanging in the air, or massive gelatinous balls of tentacles and eyes. Even worse... A handful of people land in the Walter category. He was one of the first stories that spread about these strange new cans popping up everywhere. He drank his can of Paraquant without any prior knowledge of the effects that it could have. He had found it in the refrigerator of an aging house that he had been scavenging for food, and immediately assumed that it was just a normal energy drink that he had never heard of. So, without giving it a second thought... Walter downed the entire can in one long pole. It's worth noting that those who normally find themselves feeling Walter effects won't have anything immediately happen to them. Walter had finished off the can, tossed it to the ground, and continued sweeping houses looking for food. And it wasn't until three hours later that he noticed a green growth had appeared on his wrist. Without giving it a second thought, Walter reached out and ripped off the strange growth. As he did so, pain exploded from his wrist, blood gushed out of his now open wound, and a closer look at the thing that he had just torn out of his hand revealed a tiny translucent pink root or tentacle-like tendrils hanging from the end that had just been connected to him. As fast as he could, Walter bandaged his new wound and took off not wanting to be there for very long when something caught the scent of his blood. Hours later, when he had finally finished scavenging, he set up camp at an old, used car dealership. Walter found the most comfortable car that he could to sleep in for the night, but before he could even lay down, he noticed another bulbous growth, this time on his left wrist. Walter was presented with a choice, rip out the new growth and risk of bleeding out in his sleep or leave the growth and hope that it doesn't do any strange while he sleeps. Unfortunately, he chose the latter. When Walter woke up, he was no longer in the car that he had fallen asleep in. He was now laying about a 100 feet away, face down in the dirt, with his entire arm up to his shoulder buried in the ground. He struggled to unearth his hand, almost as if something in the ground had caught hold of him and refused to let go. Different versions of this story specify different amounts of time for him being stuck unearthing his arm, but I remember it being generally agreed that he took over an hour to get his hand free. When he finally finished digging up his arm, he was terrified at what he found. The flash from his fingers to his elbow had changed, the area from his wrist to elbow becoming waxy, like the outer layer of a stem, his fingers elongating and taking on a rough texture, like roots, the entire thing now green and covered in thin, stringy vines. Walter understandably freaked out. For the next week, he told anyone that he could find of his plight, and he begged for help, but nobody knew how to help him. And that entire week, the plant-like growth spread more and more. On the first morning, his entire left arm from wrist to shoulder was completely covered in vines, On the third, his right arm was covered. On the fifth day, two more marks had sprouted, one on each kneecap, and by the seventh, his feet were rooted to the ground, making him completely incapable of moving his arms or legs. After that, the process slowed dramatically. Every monster or beast or other kinds of abominations that otherwise would have devoured him on the spot ignored him, leaving him to his fate. Every day, the growth on his knees moved upward, and almost a year after it had started, the vines poured into his mouth, flowing down his throat and removing his ability to speak. This is another part of the story where I've heard two different versions. In the first, the vines poured into Walter's shut eyes, covering the rest of his head. He had long since perished from asphyxiation or starvation or any number of other issues that would have arisen from his situation. The only reminder that he ever existed being a cautionary tale, and a vaguely human-shaped bush. And though I feel that the second version is far more, more likely to be true, I would urge you to believe in the first, if for no other reason than it is at least slightly more optimistic. In the second version, Walter was still alive and conscious, and the plants had supplied him with everything that he needed, from oxygen to nutrients. When they finally dug into his still open and fearful eyes, the only sound that he had made in weeks was heard, a muffled scream, and garbled words that vaguely sounded like please, please kill me. It's that that occasionally muffled screams can still be heard from the plant that used to be Walter. I've never witnessed it personally, but I wouldn't doubt it. There are other stories of what's happened to those that have consumed a paraquant. A friend of mine once had a cannon turned into what I can only describe as a monster, but I'll have to tell that story another time. I wanted to circle back and share another story or two about the forests of this world. Please note again that below the story is not my own and it has been transcribed from a journal in my possession. As usual with these transcriptions, I have tried to edit it to make it as coherent as possible. The first entry in journal. I've decided to go back into the forest. Everyone I've spoken to has agreed that doing so would be incredibly stupid, and that I only survived the first time out of pure luck. But I'm not convinced. There's a lot to learn from it. And besides, I'm the only one that's managed to find ways to avoid the wood bears and the dagues. The only one that can actually document what's in there for the good of humanity, or at least, what's left of it. Second entry. I took a few weeks to gather supplies for my trip. With a lot of work and Rowan's help, I managed to scrape together almost a month's worth of rations and water. And the only thing that he asked for was a copy of my journal. I offered to let him come with me so that I could teach him how to get past the various monstrosities that live within. But he just shook his head and said that the copy of my journal would do enough. Third entry. I have just entered the forest. The scent of the air is different from the other times. Usually, it's a combination of metal and petrichor, but today the only thing I can smell is rot and decay. Fourth entry. I found the source of the stench. One of these skin trees was ripped to shreds. Massive chunks of flesh and bones are littering the ground and leading away from it. There are a set of tracks completely unlike what I've seen in the forest before. They were almost human, but whatever it was had been moving on all fours. And not only were the fingers and toes too long, but the tracks were also too far apart. Upon seeing the tracks, I was considering going back. But I barely started, it, and if I do, all of the work we put into gathering these supplies will have gone to waste. Fifth entry I'm being followed. I don't know by who or what, but there's definitely something tailing me. At some point while I was walking, I realized that my journal had fallen out of my pack. Now, wanting to forfeit all of the entries that I'd made up to this point, and the possibility of future entries, I turned and went back in a giant circle until I found my own tracks. And to my surprise, there were another set of tracks moving down the same path as me. The same ones that I found earlier leading away from the skin tree. I followed them for a while and eventually I found my notebook several feet off the ground stuck in a tree. Whatever put it there left it mostly untouched. Except, above this entry, there's a small section that had strange symbols drawn into it. Symbols that I'm not familiar with. The sixth entry. I saw it. The thing was sitting in a clearing staring at me. It was pale its head round, almost bulbous. Its neck had to be over a foot long. Its eyes sunken and hollow, and its entire body stretched out and spindly almost as if its flesh didn't properly fit on its bones. The thing just stared at me, almost as if it was daring me to run. And when it stared at me, I almost felt that it was looking at me more than just my body, like it was staring into my soul. My Uncle John used to tell me stories about a creature like this, a pale, lanky monstrosity that devours these souls of its prey. He called it by two names, The first being the Nadloshi and the second being something ridiculous like Greg that I can't quite remember. When I asked him about the second one as a child, he told the friend of his who called it that. It wanted to have a less intimidating name so it wouldn't seem so daunting. Seventh entry. It's playing with me now. As I continued along my path, I found that its tracks were going in the same direction that I had planned on traveling. Now wanting to encounter it again, I turned left, assuming that the simple changing course would be enough to avoid it. However, only a short way down my new trail, I found more of its tracks. And this had gone on for several hours, no matter where I turn, or how far I always seemed to be following it. But perhaps I have misjudged the creature, As to this point, the worst thing it's done to me is steal my journal when it's clearly capable of far worse. Eighth entry. I was wrong about the creature. I came across the Nedlosia earlier only for it to attempt to attack me. The only reason I'm still alive is the knife that I've kept at my side this entire time. I stabbed it through the monster's hand and it took off in the opposite direction. Strangely enough, when it was close to me, I almost thought that I could hear screaming and see a faint orange light behind its lips. Ninth entry. I'm lost. Somehow my compass has gone missing from my pack and this deep into the forest the sun is little more than a fond memory. Even worse, before I had engaged in this expedition, I had assumed that I knew of every creature within the forest and I've recently been proved wrong yet again. I came into a clearing earlier and saw something massive moving in the distance. Its skin seemed to be dark at night. I couldn't see its full shape, but it almost looked like the top half of a person, but its eyes were haunting. They were massive, at least eight foot across, and they glowed when the light hit them. Not much different to a cat and they were filled with anguish as if whatever monstrosity I saw was racked with pain. I came here in hopes that there might be a safe place for humanity, somewhere with creatures that could be hidden from or even killed. But after two days of walking, I can confirm that there is nothing here for us. Leave the forest to whatever else lives there, and run. Tenth entry. The Nadlo she chased me into a small cave, At first I thought that was the only reason it wasn't coming after me because it thought that I might still be armed, but now I'm not so sure. It's been whispering to me for hours about how all of this has just been a game. And while at first I thought it was only trying to scare me, but now I'm starting to believe it. It's been telling me about the horrible things it's going to do to me, how it's going to dismember me and feast on my screams and I finally realized the horrible truth of this trip. I had been doomed from the start. The only reason I'd been allowed to live for this long was that creature's desire to play with its prey. My only hope at this point is... The rest of the page was illegible due to blood staining it red. Now I'm sure you're wondering how I got my hands on this journal if Jack never made it out of the forest and the simple answer is, I don't know. I found his body a few weeks after you went in, or I guess I should say I found most of his body. His arms and legs had been removed. I'm no expert, but it almost looked like they had been rotated until they were torn off. His stomach was covered in burns about the size of a finger, almost like someone had cauterized a dozen different injuries. He didn't have his journal on him either. I just woke up one day and I found it in my book bag almost like someone or something, had put it in there while I wasn't looking. Now we're getting back to the ocean again. The Below story is not my own, but I have transcribed it as well as I possibly could. To whoever finds this notebook, my name is Riley Phillips and I was living in the US when the apocalypse happened, but I'm from Greenland. Most of my family is there and I'm determined to sail across the ocean and get home. I'm writing in this journal so that if I die, others can learn what's out there and maybe even deliver it to my family if they're still around. Day zero. I thought that this would be easy, I mean, it seemed simple enough. Gather two months worth of supplies, find a boat and sail away. Unfortunately, life can't be easy. It took me three tries to find a working boat and almost two years worth of scavenging to find enough non perishable food for the journey. By the time I managed to get everything together, I felt like it was probably too late, but I had come this far so I might as well see it through. Day 1 I set sail today. I was originally going to use one of those old gasoline-powered boats, but I managed to get lucky and find a better one, with one of those solar-powered engines that were just becoming popular when the world had ended. I have found that there's shockingly the little movement in the water. I had expected a fish, birds, monsters, or something interesting that would be visible from the boat. But so far I've seen no signs of life, other than myself. I've discovered a hidden bar fully stocked with a variety of different drinks hidden in the lower level. I may test some of them to ensure that they aren't spoiled. Day 12. I may have gone a little bit overboard with the drinks, pun intended. For the last ten days, I managed to keep myself entertained by drinking and singing sea shanties. But I was very suddenly sobered up when it started to rain. I'm not a professional sailor, and I only barely know how to drive the boat that I've been on for the last week or so. But I'm fairly certain that rain is a bad sign. Hopefully, it'll stop before it ever becomes an issue. Day 13 The rain didn't stop yesterday. It faintly sprinkled all day. By the time I went to sleep, it started to drizzle a bit harder. But now it's pouring. The sound of rain pounding on the ceiling above me. My whole boat shakes as waves throw it up and down. I've thrown up four times and writing is making it worse. If this is my last entry in my journal, then my boat is capsized and I've drowned. If that's the case... Please tell my family that I love them. Day 16 It hasn't stopped raining for three days. By some miracle, I've managed to avoid sinking, but every few hours, I've had to take a bucket and start removing water from my room. I think I'm going to make it through this. Day 17 While I slept, the water poured into my cabin, creeping up to my knees. Unfortunately, my copy of The Shadow Over Inn's Mouth fell in the water while I was asleep. But luckily, I still have my hardcover copy of Stories from the Convenience Store to read. There was a lot of incomprehensible scribbling here that I couldn't decipher. Rowan. To my sister, you were the greatest sibling a person could have, and I'm sorry that I didn't get to say goodbye. To my parents, I'm sorry that I wasn't a better son. I did my best, as sad as it is. To whoever finds this journal, please find some way to get it to my family. Day 17 continued. While I was draining my cabin of water, I saw it. A massive shadow in the clouds towering higher than I thought possible. I could barely make out the features of the shadow, but it seemed to be humanoid, with two giant arms ending in talons. A great bulbous head covered in spindly tendrils and two glowing red eyes staring at me from the cloud cover. I ran down the stairs and hid. So far, nothing's happened, but I don't know how long that will last. Day 18. I can't believe I'm alive. Yesterday, fear gave way to curiosity and I climbed the steps in time to find a massive green, taloned hand slamming into the water next to my boat. Everything was turned upside down as a massive wave crashed into my boat, launching me into the water. I struggled to keep my eyes open, the salty water causing a stinging pain to ring through them. At first, I thought the darkness surrounding me was just the environment, a mixture of the dark waves that I had sunk into, and the fading sun. But then I saw it. A giant black serpent at least 50 feet long was spiraling through the water slowly making its way towards me. I tried to swim away to reach the surface to escape the monster which was surrounding me, but it was no use. The creature was faster than me. I thought that I was dead when I could see its eyes. There were gigantic pools of malice colored a shade of vibrant green that I haven't seen before or since and split down the center with a wedge of endless darkness that shone bright with the eager thoughts of feeding surging through its mind. Before I could reach the surface, it opened its mouth, revealing dozens if not hundreds of gigantic fangs. Just when it moved to consume me, the giant, taloned hand slammed into the ocean, wrapping around the serpent's head and tearing it out of the water. I watched as the creature vanished into the distance, looking tiny in the giant fist that now held it. By some luck, I found myself treading water next to my boat once again right side up. I didn't waste any time climbing aboard, turning it around and heading back where I had come from. But before I could fully escape, something gigantic splashed into the water on my left. The head of the serpent was floating next to my ship, and it almost looked like something had taken the body off in a single bite. But I didn't bother checking, because while I watched the head, sets of glowing lights surrounding it and began stripping the flesh off. The lights followed me for a time, but eventually, as I cleared the storm, they vanished. End of journal. Usually, when I write down these stories, they end with something horrible like a death or a fate worse than that, but Riley was actually still alive, and fully human the last time that I saw him. He tells everyone that he meets of his story, and to avoid the ocean, the only reason that I have his journal is that, I traded my last copy of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein for it. He was none the worse for wear to. His only issue was that he had been having weird dreams of old gods, but I'm sure that he got over it. I'll try to write more guides in the future, but for now, I'm just trying to stay alive myself. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. For free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And Found.